Keith McPete. What to say about Keith? If I had to sum up Keith in one word, I would have to say passion. I meet very few people that share the passion like Keith does. He's quick to share information. He's constantly challenging the norm of husbandry and techniques that we've utilized for years to help not only benefit where we are in herpetoculture, but also to help benefit the animals ultimately. Uh, I can't really remember the first time Keith and I met. However, I'm sure uh, with us both sharing our loves for Boland's pythons, it, it made it pretty easy. And I felt instantly like I had ran into an old friend. Uh, that feeling of old friendship continued in for years, uh, and we still remain uh, quite close. Um, Keith is truly a pioneer, in my opinion, in herpetoculture uh, and herp history. Um, we can learn a lot from what Keith has experienced in his time, as well as what he's in, unlocking uh, in the future. Um, like I said, a passionate, passionate person and an incredible wealth of knowledge. And I am very, very proud to call Keith a friend of mine. Everyone, welcome to another episode of Morelli Python Radio. And like promised in 2021, we're going to be doing things a little bit different. And we're going to be having installments throughout the year of uh, a little series that I call Herp History. And basically, we're trying to um, just uh, document the history of herpetoculture um, with the various people and um, uh, that have sort of uh, laid the groundwork uh, for the hobby. Um, you know, I feel that, uh, for me, I keep getting older and older and I feel that, uh, you know, at some point this has to be, uh, archived and documented so people understand, um, where herpetoculture has come from and, and how far we have come, uh, today in 2021. But, um, I couldn't think of a better person to start our first episode than, than our good friend, Keith McPeak. Keith has been... One of the most genuine persons I know. He has a passion, not just for reptiles, but animals in general. He uh, he just has this way of, I don't know, uh, getting inside their um, behaviors and understanding and trying to unlock uh, the mystery of these animals that we keep. Um, you know, he's probably known today mostly for his emerald tree boas, locality boas, and of course, the bull and I. Um, but... Um, Keith uh, is not just that. He, to some people, is known as the short tail python godfather, if you will. Um, he is uh, one of the guys that uh, established um, and some of the morphs that uh, some of the people are working with today um, are uh, are from Keith. And, um, you know, we were lucky enough to, uh, to be able to uh, herp with him in the Northern Territory uh, a couple years ago. And, uh, man, that was, uh, that was a bond that, uh, we found an Owen Pelly Python. There you and go. We made it, uh, one minute. <laughs> um, but, uh, I, I consider him, um, not just somebody that I look up to in the hobby, but, uh, a very close friend. 
And uh, yeah, I couldn't think of anybody better. Owen. Yes. What's your thoughts? What you said. No, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's well, the the thing is, is that like you know, I, I I may not have had too many interactions with Keith before we ended up going to Australia. We met a few times, and I know we had hung out at like some carpet fest, but he was always somebody that was kind of plugged in over on with with the Bloods and the Borneos. He was Matt's friend, and he was cool. He was very nice to me and all that fun stuff. But it, it took us going to Australia and kind of digging through, you know, talking with Keith in the back seat of the car or when we're dead tired and goofy wandering around aimlessly through the dark of Australia to really kind of start realizing that, that, that he's a really cool guy and that he is plugged into everything and anything that he bred jungle carpets. When I think I was still in elementary school, like it was all that kind of fun stuff that you kind of learned and you're right. He can pick apart an animal just by looking at it. And he has a fascination with certain species that goes above and beyond like the fact that he that we had known gavin for maybe five minutes like keith and him were talking like they had been like best friends for eons about how this might affect uh uh bull and i and that this might how it would affect an owen pelly python back and forth and back forth and i'm just sitting there in the middle watching these two people go and i'm not saying a word because i'm just trying to drink in as much as i could so it is those experiences and having that kind of a mind is what makes keith so special and they're invaluable to herpticulture if he wasn't here the, the entire community would be lesser for it and it's funny because you talk to other people and you mention him they're like oh god i love him i have we talk about this We've been like up to like three in the morning one time talking about this kind of stuff. And it's all all over the place, regardless of the species or who you're uh, what you keep. Some usually have some interaction with Keith McPeak. So it's awesome. Yes. And we uh, we also have um, Rob's going to be coming along. Uh, I don't have to say our... anything nice about Rob, do I? <laughs> we'll save that for another. Okay, good. I wasn't prepared for that either. So. <laughs> But uh, yeah, Rob's be <laughs> on the show with us uh, because, uh, you know, Rob was, uh, well, Rob, I'll let you tell me, you have a story about Keith? I, I know back in the early days you were around. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, I don't know if this is a story, but just Keith's and my story. How about that? It's not a, not necessarily a whole story. Keith back in 2003 at Daytona. Um, that was the first time I'd been to Daytona and being mid to West coast guy. It was my first opportunity to meet him, came over, got to see all the fogged over acrylics and be the pain in the butt. <laughs> wants him to try and clean one off so I could take a look at it. Um, chatting him up, you know, totally loved his website. It was not, uh, not particularly robust, but it was robust enough to have me with my own copy book sitting there going in five years, I want to buy a blue ghost from Keith McPeak. Um, so it was really, oh my God. really <laughs> you know, to go, to go through that and then to see, you know, what 17 going on 18 years later that, uh, you know, where we're at, it's, it's totally awesome. Couldn't have uh, written it better. Hope for better. Yeah, that's cool. Did you did you imagine that when you're standing there writing Blue Ghost in your copy book that you know we would be herping the Northern Territory together? I mean, no, wild, I, right? that, that's what I mean. It's it's crazy, right? That 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 would be the 
right. what would come to pass. And, and then to have just conversations about having him at the house, you know, and then go to his house. Yeah. Meet his family and vice versa and all this to go out for supper, you know, and have he's having a Long Island. I'll have a beer and whatever. And it's all good. So it's really, uh, yeah. really special. That is, that is Keith's uh, drink of choice. If people are listening and they want to get him something, just send him a Long Island iced tea. So, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get into it. And let's go all the way back to the beginning. And, uh, you know, hey, Keith. You know, glad hey. to have you here and uh, be our first uh, guest in this series. And um, we're going to go back to the beginning, all the way back, back, back to the beginning. And what it was like getting your first reptile. What was it like? First, I got to say, though, I'm like blown away by what you guys just said. Like, mm. I'm like, who are they talking about? Who is this guy? <laughs> <laughs> He's looking around yeah. for the other guy. It's like, wait. I, 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 <laughs> I'm very humbled to think that's how you guys feel about me. I, I really appreciate all those kind words. It's very nice of you guys. That's sure. awesome. So the beginning, huh? Where, mm. Oh, God, how to start the beginning. So I was definitely a weird kid, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely was more of a loner. And, you know, I, th I think from day one, I was just always into anything wildlife. My brother was eight years older than me. And, you know, so, I, I mean, at the age of three, I was playing with uh, yellow rat snakes and boa constrictors and rubber boas. I mean, back in the day, you, you could get pretty much anything you want at a local pet store. There wasn't any regulations or anything like that. So we always had some cool stuff in the house from day one. As far back as I can remember, there was just animals like that in the house. And my uncle was uh, an exotic vet and, uh, and a farm vet in Blairstown, New Jersey. And he always had cool stuff there, too. So, I mean, I just grew up around this stuff. And I can remember even as a kid, I would be catching flies and putting them in a bottle. And people would be, like, thinking that I'm, like, some strange kid torturing flies. But it was because I wanted to see them <laughs> and see them on the glass and watch how they moved around on the glass and all. I can remember... I had uh, this one uncle called him Uncle Andy, and uh, I can remember him sitting behind me while I'm looking in his jar, and I'm probably like four or five years old at the time. I remember him slapping my mom on the back and saying, that kid's going to be a scientist one day. Look at him. Look at those flies. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and he knew why I was looking at the flies, and I let him go. You know, I was looking at the flies just to see how they do what they do. I wasn't you know, one of these kids pulling the wings off of flies to torture them. <laughs> I was actually trying to see what was going on, you know. Right. And then, you know, as you, as you as you get a little bit older and, you know, back in my day, it was black and white TV as a kid with an uh, antenna on your roof and you got 13 channels. But, man, every Saturday morning I was watching Tarzan or I was watching, you know, some other kind of mutual Omaha's Wild Kingdom or whatever. And I can just remember, like, even like watching a monitor walk, I would, I was fascinated by how they kind of had that canter sway back and forth, mm -hmm. but the way they would lift their foot up and their, their fingers would almost their, drag on the ground before they lifted it up at that last second and placed it down before they took their next step. Like all that kind of weird stuff. And I could find myself, my mother would come into the 
living room, and there I am trying to walk across the floor like a Komodo dragon, you know, it's just like, what the hell are you doing? Or I'd be eating salad at the dinner table, and I'd be imitating the iguana my brother had, trying to, you know, wolf down the salad and stuff. And they were like, man, you are a strange kid, you know. But that stuff just fascinated me, you know, and and I kind of just always adhered to the behaviors of animals. And, um, you know, like I say, back in the day, you could get anything you wanted. We had this guy called Frankie. And I think I maybe told you guys about this. This guy was a guy that would go to all the local pet stores and then he would go to the wholesalers and drop off to the pet stores what they wanted. And somehow we wound up befriending this guy. So Frankie used to make a stop at our house too. And he'd pull up in his car and he'd open his trunk and his back door. And he'd have boxes of all these different lizards and snakes and monkeys and everything else. And, you know, if you had some money on you that day, you bought a couple animals off of Frankie, you know. And that was kind of cool because back in the day, people didn't have a real interest in reptiles. So, you know, green lizards were coming in or leopard lizards and, you know, nobody was going through them, holding back gravid animals or anything like that. So you'd be getting all these, I'd be getting animals at, you know, five to 10 years old that were gravid. And getting a chance to try to hatch some eggs and stuff, you know? Wow. But back then, you know, you didn't have all the equipment that you have nowadays. So, you know, me and my infinite wisdom, I would be trying to hatch leopard lizard eggs with a hairdryer blowing on the ground, you know, trying to keep the ground warm. (laughs) Because you didn't have any information. You didn't have any internet. All you would say is, hey, a chicken keeps their eggs warm. So maybe reptile eggs need to be kept warm too. And, you know, you'd go for it. And, uh, of course I didn't hatch anything back then, uh, <laughs> but it, it, it was just a study of the animals that always fascinated me for the longest time, you know? Right. Yeah. Was there, was there a particular reptile that you had as a pet that you remember that stands out to you, whether it was either your, your very first one or the one that made the biggest impact on you? There was two that we had this, uh, uh, very large male iguana that had a typical large male iguana. Um, and uh, I can't even remember his name, but we had a boa constrictor also at the same time called Cuddles. And, <laughs> and, 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 yeah, we actually named reptiles back then in the McPeak house, believe it or not. Perfect. And, um, and those two animals probably were the first animals that um, they were my brothers, but they were the first animals. Like I say, I was three to five years old that I got to interact with. And I can remember taking a shot from that iguana on my uh, face from the tail Ooh. and being like, you know, wow, <laughs> you know, what the hell was that? Like, I had no idea that they did that or anything else. And, and I was hooked from then on, you know, I had to figure out why he hit me with his tail, what that was all about. And, um, you know, just all that kind of stuff. But they just hooked me on it. Watching that iguana and watching that boa constrictor, I was hooked. And I would go out in the field and try to catch, you know, back then we used to have green snakes that were um, local to us. And we had uh, garter snakes and even um, blue-tailed skinks and all like right in my backyard, we have a rock wall. I go back there hunting and just try to be like my big brother and try to get a snake or or a lizard or something that I could keep in captivity like he was, you know. And the funny thing is, is when my brother got about 
I'm going to say maybe 20 years old, mm. all of a sudden he developed a fear of snakes and he was scared to death of snakes. Really? It was the wow. weirdest thing, you know, like it grew in me, but at some point it just started freaking him out. And, you know, then of course the little brother with the snake and big scared brother, you know, I think he got more interested in chasing girls than animals at that point, you know, right. but, but those two animals, it was an iguana and I, and I, um, we had other stuff before that, but those two animals are really when I started understanding things about them and, and wanting to keep stuff myself, you know? Right. Was there a point where you, you know, you see today, right? The progression is like you, you get a reptile and then, you know, you, you start to, you know, want to, obviously there's a lot more information out today and, and, and access to that information is at your fingertips. What was it, what was it like to be in the reptile hobby, quote unquote, and becoming serious with reptiles. I mean, did you just stop at those two animals or, or no, no it, was, <laughs> it was never stop, you know, and, and you got to realize the books back then did yeah. not cater to captive husbandry because nobody was keeping them for more than just being an oddity really. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so books that you got were basically field information and you had to take field information and decipher that into how that would work in captivity. Um, so yeah, no, I was always collecting from day one. So my, you got to realize, so like my uncle was this exotic vet. And like, when I went there, I was a kid of five years old playing with a tiger cub <laughs> or a black Panther cub walking around in his house or a capuchin right. monkey or a spider monkey or different birds. And, he had a chimpanzee there once, you know, totally. and I would go there and, and, and he would just all of a sudden say, Hey, Keith, here, here's a bag for you. And I'd open it up and there would be like a 12 foot Suriname boa in there wild caught. Um, and he would send me home with it, you know? Oh, so gosh. like it wasn't unusual or strange or anything in our house. Cause you never knew what was coming here. I mean, we had, I've had Capuchin monkeys for a long time and, and squirrel monkeys in the house. And um, we had parrots that were loose in the house. And my parents were very, if it would keep me out of trouble and I was taking care of it, I could pretty much get whatever I want. You know, I mean, 10 years old and I had a three foot spectacle caiman in my room in a, in a fish tank, you know. Um, but, you know, your husband, as we got older and information started to get better in the hobby and people saw that there was more people getting into it and products were starting to be made than care for these animals started getting better and better and your success with them got better and better. You know, we did fantastic with, um, local species because, you know, your household environment kind of catered to them, but we didn't know enough about Burmese pythons or, you know, even Colombian boas or anything at that time. So, a lot of times, you know, if an animal made it, you know, even past a year or two, you thought you were doing fantastic, you know. It, right. it took a while for that technology to catch up with how you kept in the hobby. So rat snakes and corn snakes and and um, garter snakes and water snakes, they all, you know, you'd keep them five, ten years, no problem. But the more exotic stuff, you know, you'd get it and hope for the best with it because you really didn't know what the heck you were doing back then. 
I'm talking in the 60s and early 70s, you know. And I would imagine that all that stuff is all wild caught, right? So you're you're already... Yeah, nobody was captive breeding. I mean, right. you know, I'm sure guys like Tom Crutchfield and and our new friend Richard Ross and guys like that in the 60s and 70s were starting to breed stuff, but they were older than I was at that time. So for me, um all it was is about getting a species. Um it was probably more along the lines of like what some people do with tropical fish, you know, it's just to have something in the house to watch and look at and study more than, you know, breeding wasn't even thought about back in the day, you know, for me and the people that I associated associated with in the hobby, it was strictly to observe and just keep alive, you know? When do right. you think the shift happened to it becoming a, a something, a, a breeding thing? 80s and 90s late 80s and 90s yeah and uh the 90s is when just everything exploded really you know where everything with internet became more accessible and big shows started happening i think this is the 32nd year this year for the national reptile show which would put that at around 1990 when that came about and that was really a big turning point for the hobby in and of itself um just that show taking off you know Mm -hmm. Was that one of the very first reptile shows? Um... I can't remember. Maybe Rob knows if Pottstown and PA and a couple other little local shows may have been before it. Um, there may have been some small, like, believe it or not. So there was this show, and and Matt may know about this show, but there was a show in Pottstown, PA. Mm-hmm. And um, back then, like, um, Mark Bell was doing the shows, but Mark Bell would get a table there in PA. And, um, you know, Brian Barcheck literally had a table smaller than mine back then, you know, with a couple animals in it. And that may have been a show before the national uh, show down in, uh, well, Orlando originally and then Daytona. But that is was really what turned the tide when that show came around. And then every show just kind of tried to mirror that and, gain a success it did but never happened for the first 20 years anyway that was the show you know Mm -hmm. right i mean i guess we'll we'll jump into that real quick and just maybe talk about that what did did you vend that first show did you attend that yeah i I did it i did it from um i did it from the very first show now when i first started doing that Mm -hmm. show it was impossible to get a table so how what i did was um dan and phil that owned um, New York Reptilia, where Quetzal used to work. Mm-hmm. Quetzal, Quetzal was like a 15-year-old kid when I was going there. Um, they used to get a table down there, and, and they would bring their animals down, and then they would get an extra table for me. So for the first few years, I was vending the show, but I was vending it under their name because I just couldn't get my own table, and I went on a waiting list. And to give you an idea of how that show was in the beginning, Kevin McCurley would have a spot on a table a friend of his and literally have like four ball pythons so in the beginning you know (laughs) compared to what kevin does nowadays um you know that's how he started out you know there was different names back then that were the big players um but yeah i did that from the the very first show all the way up in i think to 2012 or 2013 um was the last time i vended the show wow what was I mean? How do you even prepare for? Oh, I mean, you're going God. into the unknown, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, my my whole thing with the shows, and I've talked to you guys about before, was shock and awe. 
I'm like, I'm going to bring everything. And, you know, back then I really wasn't as concerned about, there wasn't like all these things like nidovirus out there or any of these other things. So like I'd bring the best of the best that I had and as many babies as I could fit. And in the beginning I would just, you know, you'd put them in a trunk and you'd check them on as luggage before nine 11. And, oh. and, you know, oh. they didn't even care. They'd open it up and they would look at it and they'd question it. And I would show them the rules and regulations on their thing that pets can travel like that. And I would always have a little bit of a hassle at check-in, but they always let it through. And that's how I was getting down there. And then after nine 11, that clamped down. So um, we had to start driving down. So I was bagging up and, you know, bringing maybe, you know, 10 adults and, you know, up to 200 baby animals down on a drive down to Florida in the car. I didn't do a trailer like Matt does or anything. So everything was in the car. And Teresa would always be very happy if we could make it out of Jersey before the first snake shit (laughs) stunk out the car, you know, you got an adult blood python. You basically got something like a great Dane that's letting loose in the car, you know? So, yeah, you know, all, we'd stop at a rest stop crap. and try to wash yeah. them out. Yeah, it was, it was, it was an adventure every time we went down to Florida, but that's what I did at the shows. I just tried to get two or three tables and, and, you know, bring everything that was the best of the best. And I was the only guy at the shows with nothing but bloods and short tails on it. So it kind of stuck out to everybody. Cause if they wanted bloods or short tails, I'd be the first table they'd stop at knowing that I'd have a lot of animals, you know? Right. How does the level of species or the number of species uh, compare to say what you see today? Was it, was it more of just a a huge variety of of species? Yeah. But you got to remember in the very beginning, we weren't desensitized to species. So Mm -hmm. seeing a leopard gecko would blow you away, you know, because You just had, and and the internet was just kind of catching on in the early days and all that kind of stuff. So you didn't get this instant information like you do today. So I can remember the first crested geckos down in Daytona. People were just blown away that there's these little lizards with these spikes over their eyes. And, you know, people that I thought saw everything were blown away by what we would consider not even a second look today because everybody's just like desensitized to what's really in front of them and take it for granted, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know. Any of you guys got anything you want to hit on? I mean, like, what, what was the one animal that blew you away, Keith? That, like, when it emerged on the scene that you were, like, it, it yeah. had, like, just kind of knocked your socks off. Something you never thought you'd either see in person or have in person. Well, there's a couple species. So there was a lot of stuff that was available and you would hear about it being available in Europe and, and not making it to the States. But like, you know, like just seeing the, even their kind of top animals today, but green Sanzinia, Woma, Blackhead, Bolani, um, like when you saw the first one of any of those species at, at a show, it, it like the, the crowd around that table was just insane. Hmm. You'd have to wait 20 minutes to try to make your way in to get a shot and a look at that animal, you know? And, um, I can just remember those always being like dream species that y- you hoped would be in Daytona and, and then Daytona, like, you know, nobody gave away what was going to be there. So like you went there with these expectations that, 
you know, you didn't know what you were going to see because, you know, that would be the first time that you actually did see a blackhead python in person or a bull and eye in person. Um, and, you know, you only saw maybe three pictures in a book that was available at the time and, and never even thought you would see one in person, you know? So, I mean, even Burmese pythons back then were amazing. Jesus. Sometimes, right, Keith, then there'd be the the extra spicy stuff that would be even more fancy now in terms of there was that year that the Japanese folks had all those shingle backs. And then there was uh, yeah. the guy oh, who was God. in, um, oh, shoot, over off the West coast of Europe, that, that island down the island country, island nation down there, he had brought a bunch of Agurnia Cunningham, eye, the Cunningham skin, uh-huh. um, yeah. all that sort of stuff. And heck, it was so crazy, right? That I remember one year, a guy that was in our group, uh, it was checking out the show, came back insistent that there was a Moloch and it wound up being a carving of a Moloch, but it was so yeah. realistic and it, it, <laughs> yeah. to, to give an idea of what the, the possibility, right. That you're talking about Keith, it was like, right. it was a 30% chance that there was actually a Moloch at the show based on what yeah. I'd seen. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You're right. I remember those single backs. They were just blowing you away when you saw them. They were incredible. That is awesome. Yeah, I kind of remember like my first reptile show, and it was like kind of like almost like going to the zoo, you know, <laughs> because you're going to see species that, you know, to me it was like the zoo 2.0, you know. I mean, I can only imagine in those days. Yeah, back then, I mean, you saw stuff that zoos wish they had. You yeah. know what I mean? Like before that, before the shows, like my most exotic reptiles were my sister um, and her husband. He was in the military in Texas and he was stationed at all different bases down there and we would go for a visit. And one time I, I got to go and stay for almost four weeks and all I did was herp every day by myself. Um, they would they would say, just check in. You didn't have cell phones or anything else, you know, and I'm like a 15, 16, 17 year old kid running around in Texas trying to catch rattlesnakes and all these other kind of things. My sister would just be like, you know, just check in at lunchtime and around dinner time, just so we know you're OK. And they're like, and if you're in the, if you're in the ravine and you hear a rumbling like a train coming towards you, that's a flash flood that's probably happened 30 miles away. Make sure you get out of the ravine before the water hits you. You know, and I was just on my own down there catching curly tail lizards and, and, you know, different, um, bull snakes or gopher snakes and all kinds of cool stuff. And up until the first shows, that was like when we went to Oz, you know, and how blown away I was with Mm -hmm. you guys there. Um, and you know, I mean, I can remember coming back and even two years later, I'd be, you know, having a migraine or something like that. I can remember laying in bed and just thinking about the excursions I was doing down in Texas, looking for these different reptiles just to kind of calm down and soothe myself and all, because it was just such an insane trip, you know? So like Rob says, when these shows started, like, you know, you're seeing this exotic stuff from around the world um, that importers were able to get their hands on so easily compared to nowadays. Um, uh, you, you saw more stuff than you do see nowadays, I guess, in a way, right, Rob? I mean, sun gazers and uh, yeah. all kinds of stuff you would see there. It seems to me now, if there's any hope for that sort of stuff, it's probably in amphibians and turtles and things, you know, things that are a little bit more obscure, but right, you'll see that. Ran- Remember the year there was all those caiman lizard 
and it yeah. now it's, we've become desensitized to it. But at the, there was a year yep. where it was like, what? What is this? You you never thought you would see a caiman lizard, yeah? Yeah, it's so cool. It's almost like we have less species to choose from now, but we are uh, allegedly have more. Um, yeah. So it's just kind of like that. But like Keith, yeah, I I, I got into snakes and stuff like that in early 2000s in college. So I never really got to experience some of the stuff that you're talking about as far as shows. But I mean, the other thing that I always like talking with you guys that have done it for so long is how you guys purchased reptiles. <laughs> like, how is it different from when you first started? But like, I know you said you had the friend with the traveling zoo that he let you buy out of the back of his car. Or something yeah, like that, it but. was it was that or yep. I, I can remember going to um there was a uh, pet store and what I found out was that there was very close to me, a couple wholesalers that would get all of these reptiles in. And if I snuck in there and act like I belonged in there, they wouldn't <laughs> kick me out for a while, you know? And so I would try to save up as much money as I could. Cause I also found out that if they did question me and were trying to quick kick me out, if I was going to spend 50 bucks in there at the time was like spending 500 bucks. Now, probably mm -hmm. they would let me spend my money before they kicked me out. Right. Um, so I was finding like Spilotus in there and, and all kinds of really cool stuff. But other than that, my only shot at getting anything cool that uh, I wanted was a local pet store. Um, there was one called Casmers and one called Robins. And now, believe it or not, you would go in there and you would buy indigos by the foot. They were $10 oh a foot. Oh, my God. So <laughs> they would have Eastern indigos in a 10-gallon tank or a 20-gallon oh. tank or a 50-gallon tank. And they sold them by the foot. He would literally take them out and he would put a tape measure on them and it was 10 bucks a foot. And that was a high price tag back in the day. They also had tanks full of uh, mud puppies and hellbenders oh, and God. all kinds of really crazy stuff. But if you went in there and you said like an iconic species for me as a kid that I always wanted and it just represented the South American rainforest was an emerald tree boa. Hence mm -hmm. why I'm into emerald tree boas now. But as a kid, I always wanted one. Every time I'd go in a store and I'd have to give them a deposit and I'd say I'd want an emerald tree boa, every time I would wind up. And Rob, I think they were actually um, – uh, uh, Granadas, or uh, I don't think they were Amazons. I can't, you know, I was so cook young guy. back then. I couldn't, for, they would call yeah. them cook guy, you know, and I think some of them yeah. were, you know, but especially, yeah, which and that's what I would get. And they would tell me it's an emerald. I'm like, that's not an emerald. And they're like, yes, it is. I'd be so disappointed. <laughs> Meanwhile, now I would kill for that snake, you know, <laughs> but yeah, I would take it home. And I can remember I had one that just would not eat. And I'm probably like 12, 13 years old, and it would not eat, would not eat, would not eat. So we had this one red maple tree in our front yard and there was nothing else around it. And I pruned the branches to like six feet off the ground and I let that snake go in that tree. And it stayed in that tree for damn near the whole summer. And um, I swear it was catching little sparrows or something that in that tree because it started to put on weight and started to like come back and look really good. And uh i brought it in the winter and subsequently killed it you know i i, I couldn't keep it alive but it was doing great outside but and, and i can remember asking i wanted those green horn frogs you know i just wanted one of the horn frogs and i wound up getting one of those leaf frogs like you would ask for stuff you would have to pay for it 
or give them at least a hefty deposit before they would try to track one down for you. And whatever they got, you had to take it. And it was never what you wanted. <laughs> it was never what you wanted, but you had to take it because otherwise they would never try to get you something down the road, you know? Right. So like when you started getting mail lists from Crutchfields and Gulf Coast Reptiles and all these different places in Florida could actually pick and get that animal, even though it may have been in horrible shape or whatever, but you were getting what you wanted. That was like a huge step forward for me, you know? Were you actually getting that animal? Like, cause like, would they send pictures or could you no. request pictures? Or was that no. it? <laughs> no, that was it. Like, you know, like, you know, the old price list, like you, like that's how I got my first croc monitors. I, I got them from Tom and sure enough, he did sex them correctly even back then. Jeez. And, um, and, and, and I got eggs from them, but I, I never went any further than that. And I wound up trading them off something because they were so expensive for me to feed back then. Yeah. But I just asked for two, a pair, if you could, a croc monitors, sight unseen, send your money and, and you get what you want. That's how I got my first uh, Borneo short tails. They were, they were the newly discovered island um, blood python is how they represented them on the everything was newly discovered re, re, newly rediscovered and always and the, that's how i got my first right? borneo blood, uh, short time. 100 well, yeah the newly discovered yeah. but then you find out that they were described in like the 1800s it's like newly right. discovered my foot like i don't yeah yeah, yeah. hank was uh, always yeah. best with the flourishes like that <laughs> yeah the annotations that yeah. Said, uh, the best i've ever seen or you know, some new subspecies or whatever. I was telling um, Eric before we went on the air, a funny story about Hank Malt is um, when I uh, first bred Sanzinian, I had the first litter back in the day and they were, had a lot of value to them. And I was really had my eye on monitors. I actually tra- traded a pair of Sanzini to Hank Malt for five baby Gallardi. Um, and that's how I got, uh, got Gallardi back in the day when they were really rare and hard to find. The Sanzinia just happened to be a little bit rare and a little bit harder to get back then, especially captive born. Still sounds like a good deal. Do it every time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that, that's, yeah. I mean, and now you're going back around again where you might get a litter of Sanzinia that are rare again or still yeah. rare. It's like, it, yeah, the it, greens are hard. Yeah. 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 What's old is new again. Right. <laughs> the circle. I, you know, I, I, how did, so back in the early days, how did you meet fellow reptile keepers? Like you didn't, man. If you were lucky, if you were lucky, the store owners back then, they, they really could care less about what was in their shop. I hate to say they just wanted to make sales, you know, so they weren't really reptile people that could mentor you or anything like that. And if you were really lucky and you were in there and you happened to bump into somebody looking at the same animal and start a conversation and they were local to you, you'd be lucky to be able to pick up your house phone and maybe give them a call and talk to them. But really until the show started, um, for me anyway, is when I really started um, connecting with other people. But, you know, for me, it was always been not the animals anyway. You know, like I say, I was always kind of a loner. And so I was quite content just having my animals and being by myself. And when odd people came over to the house, you know, my parents, friends or whoever, 
And, you know, my parents would say, oh, show them your snakes or something like I would give them a lecture and a half and be so happy to have somebody to talk to, you know, I mean, there, there was times literally like I would have a boa constrictor and my mom would get on the phone and call the neighbors. Hey, Keith's going to feed the snake. And they would come over to watch me feed the snake, you know, because, yeah. you know, back then I was putting a live rat in a cage and letting it walk yeah. around a little bit and letting the boa constrictor nail it. So, you know, all the women would scream and all the husbands would be laughing and. It was like a big event and everybody would have a drink and go home. You know, it was, it was kind of the thing that you did back then. Yeah. I remember that being a big thing my dad used to do in the neighborhood for the kids. It would be like, oh, you know, he's going to feed the snakes. And, you know, all the kids would come over and we'd all be yeah. up just watching him feed, you know, chicks yeah. and rats to snakes, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting to meet and start knowing Keith McPeak was a huge influence on me. Uh, going to the big shows and starting to go up to his table and see a guy that was keeping all Borneos and blood pythons at a time when that wasn't a real popular thing and uh, me wanting to basically focus on them and that's what I was really into was huge for me and besides his animals speaking for themselves of how awesome they looked and, and all the work he put into them. Keith's approach to it and his eye for detail and everything that plans for for how he would increase things and add things into it really changed and, and molded my way of thinking even further than what I had in my head already. Uh, over time, getting to know Keith even more and his family, I always would say, uh, you know, Keith is like family, but at this point, I can honestly say Keith is family and uh, when we get together talking animals is, is the main thing and we can go on about that forever but just talking about life and stupid subjects I can carry on with Keith uh, anything and it's interesting and I feel you know comfortable around him and his family and it's a great thing Keith's just a, an amazing keeper an amazing person and uh, really glad I got to meet him early on he's, he's one of my oldest friends since I came back in the reptiles from when I was a kid and I'm just really lucky to have known him and have the relationship I do with him. So, you know, definitely top one, number one on my list, Keith McPeak. For today's keepers, right, you have YouTube and social media and podcasts and all this stuff for people to find people that they sort of look up to or try to, uh, you know, pick their brain or whatever. I guess probably for me, Owen and and bob rock there um it's uh uh it's probably mark o'shea steve Irwin, guys like that like who who was it in your day did, did you even have anybody no there, there it was mutual Omaha's wild kingdom man that was it you know you, you watch marlon perkins tell tom to, i forget the guy's name tom to get out of the van and wrestle the anaconda you know <laughs> and, and, and while he stands in the, well, in the truck there, and watches yeah yeah, yeah. And like I say, until I, I started going to shows, like Frankie was my guy. Like Frankie was the guy for reptiles. And, you know, he, he, he was just a salesman too, but at least he knew where certain species came from. And I was fascinated just to get that in, uh, information or, you know, he'd tell me this one likes crickets, but this one 
um, you know, prefer spiders or this one, you know, he would give you information and that information alone. You're like, wow, this guy knows so much about these things, you know? And meanwhile, it, he was just, you know, throwing me a line of shit, but I was taking a hook, line and sinker because there was no access to anything like that. You know, um, you got to remember, like I say, you, you, there was no phone numbers of Don Hamper to give a call to or anything like that. You know, there was just, uh, mainly the books, like I say, on, on, on wild accounts of animals, not even, nobody was breeding anything back then, you know? Yeah. Right. So what was your most cherished book? Yeah. Eric beat me to it. (laughs) Uh, I, I think it was called, um, the field guide to North American snakes. And it was a little black book. And and one of the species that always fascinated me and I had no idea they literally lived around me because I'd never found them um, until recently was uh, black rat snakes. To me, that was like one of the most exotic snakes in really? North America. And if, because they call them, you know, they, they call them pilot snakes and they had all these cool names for them. And, them are black racers, you know, either one to me was like one of the most fascinating snakes. If I could ever find now when Teresa and I go on hikes, like I jump over them because there's so many of them in the one park we go to, they're like all over the place, you know? And actually about two years ago, man, I, there was one specimen that I could not get my hands on. It was huge. I mean, it was, it was girthy. It was like, it's almost as big around as my wrist. And I, I, I mean, it was like indigo size. And I, I made a couple dives for it, but it was too fast when I couldn't get my hands on it, just get a couple pictures of it. That animal made me go right back to my childhood and like being blown away of black rat snakes, you know? Yeah. I really 100%. thought you were going to say Eastern hogs there, Keith. I know for me, the same experience of looking at the field guide, Eastern hogs not being here, that, that was, I really thought that's what you were going to say. Yeah, no, black rat. Rob, you know the, the book, what is the name of the book? Um, it's the old book and it's white and it has like hand drawn pictures of all the species of reptiles and frogs in North America. And they, they don't outline them all, but they have maybe, you know, a total of 50 an, uh, animals. And that was another book that was uh, a classic to me. I'll have to take a picture of that, Eric, and send it to you. But that book, I still have that book and look back in it just for nostalgia, you know, to, to go back and get that sure. mindset of being a kid again and, and all that the United States actually had a crocodile that lived mm. within the borders of the United States. You know, yeah. that, that to me was like mind boggling or that we had alligator snappers, you know, and for a long time, that's the stuff that blew me away. But then when the shows came around and I got in that mentality of being a breeder more mm. than being there for the animals, I lost that for a while, you know, and I was just chasing that next thing to breed or the next morph to create. And I think as you get older, um, I see it with Tom Crutchfield's posts on Facebook and a lot of other old keepers. It seems, you know, people kind of revert back to going back to that first love of think about an alligator snapping turtle. If you did not live in the United States, how cool would that be of a species of an animal that you would hope to see one day if you lived in Australia or Europe or someplace else? I mean, we're spoiled with rattlesnakes. Like we don't exactly, we take take rattlesnakes for granted. Other people are insane about them. Right. So yeah. 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 (laughs) Nipper comes to mind. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Okay. So 
I guess let's let's shift gears a little bit into the next. I'm, uh, you know, I'm assuming at this point you're getting, you know, more it, keeping is becoming uh, more. What was like? Well, let's let's do this real quick. What was like the first piece of? Ah, uh, there you go. I've had that book. Yes, you found the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> very cool. Yeah, a guide to familiar American species, reptiles, and amphibians. There you go. Yeah. Awesome. Yep. Who wrote that book, Rob? Just in case people want to. So it's a golden nature guide. Right. Let's see okay. if it has Herbert Zim and Hobart Smith. Hobart Smith. There you go. Nice. Okay. Um, yeah. I have all, all the pictures in that book ingrained in my head. Can you imagine Hobart Smith as the junior author on a book? Right. <laughs> That actually is probably the first book and my Bible as, as a kid growing up that I would probably thumb through at least once or twice a day, you know? Right. Awesome. What, what, <clears throat> what was the transition from being uh, a keeper to wanting to go into breeding? Like when did that trigger for you? What? I guess success. Um, one of the first animals that I, I was successful with, and it wasn't because I bred them, but I got a gravid um, pair of Jackson chameleons and the female within four days of getting it dropped this litter of babies. Oh, wow. And I was successful in raising those babies. And that success just was like, okay, you, this can be done. It's you know not out of the realm. You just got to really think things out. And, you know, um, you couldn't buy fruit flies or anything for these little guys. So you had to get creative and cut apples up and put them outside and then quickly net over top of them to get fruit flies and then get them loose in your house and have your mother freaking out because they didn't sell wingless fruit flies. Oh, you God. know, and oh, and then God. as they grew, you'd put out a uh, you'd put out either a stake on the picnic table to attract. Um, the green flies, or you would look for your dog's crap in the yard and try to catch the green flies off of that and bring them in as the chameleon babies were growing. And just being successful in raising those baby chameleons um, was probably what set me off on starting to think, hey, I can not only keep these things, but maybe I can figure out how to breed different things, you know? Um, so that started the journey for sure on um, trying to get pairs of animals and just instead of single animals. So, so how did that work? Like what was, you know, like, I mean, how, how, what, what, uh, you know, I don't know. Did you, did, when you bought an animal, you bought them as pairs? Did you, did you have to wait years to complete a project? Yeah, how long did it take to pair something up back then when you don't know when the next one was going to pop up? Well, so then, so then what happened is what, what I started doing was I figured out that there was this thing local to me called the Wanad Press. And in the Wanad Press, it was like a, it was like a little paper flyer that came out every week. So maybe 200 pages long and guys would be selling cars and they'd be selling all these different things, but there was a pet section. Mm -hmm. And if you look through the pet section, you would find out 
um, need to get rid of red tail boa constrictor or needed to get rid of whatever because they bought it in a store and realized they can't take care of it or they lost interest after the shine wore off of it or whatever. And you could go to these places and actually pick them up either for free just to get them out of their people's houses or practically for nothing. So I would literally go and just try to get boas were a big thing for me, just, you know, Colombian boas. And that was the first snake species I ever bred. Um, I got uh, Colombian boas. And I can remember um, having two pairs and two females. And I was successful breeding them to one male. And both females dropped their litters on the very exact same day. And they both had 32 babies and, you know, no slugs or nothing else. Like it was perfect. And they dropped each other within hours of each other. I'm like, what the heck is going on with that? You know, right. um, because I never thought in a million years, like you could, you would have two gravid animals and they go in the same time. They're in the cycle and nobody knew about ovulation or pre lay sheds or any of this kind of stuff then, you know? So that was uh, that was all inspiring in itself, and that's probably the turning point for me to really start focusing more on um, snakes. And so I had all these baby, I had sixty four baby boas to deal with, you know, which you you didn't run to the store and buy Tupperwares, you didn't have that access to, you know. So everything was in like five gallon aquariums back then, and all of them keeping these things in there and trying to figure out what to do with them also go to the local pet stores and those guys man they would scoff them up left and right because they have never seen captive born baby boa constrictors you know and i they're seeing dollar signs so Mm -hmm. they were very easy to sell back then um and that's you know kind of what started i didn't do it for the money it was really cool and i kind of sold them just to get rid of them so i didn't have to take care of so many animals but then i'm like hey I just made a couple hundred bucks. I can go out and get this, that, or the other thing, you know? So that's kind of what started it all, Uh, you know, working hard, trying to breed things to generate cash to go buy more things. Snake Um, money. Always needs money. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Before you had a real full-time job and you were looking, you know, raking leaves in neighbor's yards or anything else I could do to earn a few bucks to go buy the next thing that I wanted to get. And, once you start a breeding, you're like, hey, this can actually pay for itself in a way. So put your efforts into that. And that's kind of how the whole thing breeding started. How did you, how did you go about even like having an idea of how to set up a baby boa? Like what? Yeah. Walk us well, through, like, the high tech equipment back then was right. you got to you got to remember the, the original tanks that people used were actually probably better for reptiles than glass not that glass aquariums are the ideal thing now but back then they were metal framed and they had yeah. slate bottoms yeah. okay yeah all right yeah. you know so that. when when you got a, a the high tech equipment back then was those stick on uh heat and pads mm-hmm. and when you put that on the bottom of a slate bottom tank it dissipated the heat so it wasn't such a fine you know heat spot in one location like it is on a glass tank right and that's probably why i was successful with the boas um, you know, using that and, and, um, I think that's kind of like, you know, the first piece of equipment that I probably ever bought for reptiles was those stick on heat pads. I even think back then, like you probably didn't even have like a, a six outlet, you know, 
mm-hmm. uh, you know, like power strip. So it's like no. all plugs plugged into the outlet, like the Christmas time, you know? <laughs> no. And, and like, you know, the, the heat, the additional heaters that anybody would have were like kerosene heaters or something like that. Like there wasn't these DeLongo oil filled radiant heaters or anything else. So the, you were never even thinking about heating the whole room. Um, and and creating an ambient warmer temperature and maybe with a basking spot you were just trying to heat that tank you know right so a chameleon's first species that you you know uh had babies and were successful you know the boas what was like the the first breeding project that you 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 went after i want to keep these breed these did it were successful with it what was that? What was that species? Um, it was definitely colubrids, you know, king snakes uh, were starting to become more available. And, mm-hmm. you know, I always had a fascination with king snakes. So I'd get into the colubrids, but I always had, you know, it, it was about having a lot of species back then and not concentrating on one species. Like when I finally did start with short tails and bloods. So, you know, you would have um king snakes and and maybe some corn snakes but you would also have um you know a pair of boas and a pair of rainbow boas or a painted pair of dumal boas or whatever else you could get your hands on um you just had a pair of this and a pair of that you know and it was you know depending on how you're recycling your room because you really didn't know what was going on certain species would breed and the ones that bred for you were the ones that you kind of gravitated toward to try to get more of either the similar species or more of that species. Um, and it kind of kept just building that way, you know, but then as your expertise and your experience and all this kind of stuff starts building, then you start finding out, Hey, you can divide the room up and you can keep the boids in here and the king snakes in there and maybe a few monitors, you know, in this room and separating it up. But there's nothing like a single species room to really learn that animal you know i I don't think i'll ever know an animal or feel as confident talking about an animal as i do blood tail uh bloods and short tails you know um just spent too much time with them um with nothing else in the room to even think about except those animals and you know i i i say you can always learn but i swear i could think what they were going to do before they knew what they were going to do themselves. You know, you just, you just get to that point when you're that focused and you have, you know, 50 adult breeders and, you know, another 75 to 150 animals that you're raising up for future projects. And then a whole bunch of babies that are on the market for sale. You just, you know, tend to, you, you know, a little about a lot, but I knew a lot about them for sure. You know, and those are the animals that I'll always, feel comfortable with until my mind starts going and I forget all the stuff that I learned about them, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So was it notebooks, index cards, tape? Rolls of parchment. um, I would imagine. Stone slab (laughs) that you carved into. What what was it, Keith? I would imagine Uh, back then it was like. It was a stone and a chisel and a hammer. I knew it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, it wasn't that far back. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you didn't have anything with computers or anything like that. It was just an index card on there for basic records. But to be honest with you, man, I always kind of just went by feel, you know, even today, like, you know, I'll be talking to somebody and we're like, oh, how much that animal weigh? And I'll be like, oh, shit, I have no idea, man. I don't have any clue, right. you know, 
And to me, you know, I get the importance of all that. And thank God for the guys that do keep all these records and all that stuff. Like, you know, Jeff Murray was having me uh, weigh each one of my baby Rochenberger eye for his records and all, you know, and I was doing it for him and, and definitely not for me. And I appreciate the people that put the time in it for me, for the, uh, for the hobby. But for me, it's always just like it almost it almost stresses me out too much to have all those records to look back on because then if some animal is not adhering to those records, you know, like that Ro that Rochenberger eye that I had this year, that female did the weirdest thing that, you know, you would never believe could happen where she drops one baby. She shed three times before she dropped her litter, which was very unusual, all mm -hmm. within about four weeks of dropping the babies then she dropped one baby then like four days later i thought she was done and she drops two more babies and then like another day later she drops like seven babies you know it's just the weirdest thing and if i guess if you have that on record then you look back and say hey this could happen but for me looking back on records always st stresses me out if, if most stuff is going on 32 days and this one's at 42 what the heck is going on should i bring it to a vet and stress it out and this and that yeah so i always kind of go by feel with the animals you know um and didn't do a whole lot of record keeping as a when i was first starting out especially you know in those days did you have like a um a goal that you wanted to figure out that season like i would imagine that each year a new thing unlocks especially if you're keeping like you know a specific well, yeah with with but you got to remember in the first days nobody really cared about morphs ball pythons brought on morphs before the and 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 burmese pythons were before ball pythons the albino berm you know that that created a lot of hysteria and then with when um bob clark got the albino retic that created a lot of hysteria but before that man it was just wow you bred colombian boas oh my god you know right. i want some of them babies and it didn't matter even what they looked like it was just that it was a captive born colombian boa that people were blown away by and wanted you know there was nothing nobody cared about widow peaks or color of the tail or lineage back to this <laughs> animal or any of that shit you know it was, it just, was just that yeah you bred that animal and now you have babies for sale it, it didn't matter how red the blood python was or any of that kind of stuff it was just that it was captive born was insane compared to wild caught you know keith how was shipping babies like how did you do that in when you, you first had started? to do cargo back then cargo, everything was there cargo wow so you had uh before 9 11 it was no big deal you just you didn't even have to call in advance or anything else you just um call to find out a flight time for the area you're going to and you you went down and you didn't need anything. You just said it was a live snake and they took it and off it went. Then, you know, restrictions started getting harder where uh, after 9-11, you know, they had to come to your house and inspect um, when you wanted to be a known shipper with United was or Delta Dash. You know, Delta was the guys I always used. So I had to get an inspector come to the house to make sure I was doing a legitimate snake breeding in the house before they would let you ship from it. Because, uh, you know, after the terrorist attacks, they were worried that, you know, you were setting up an account to be able to ship and it wasn't even a real address or anything. So sometimes they would come and they wouldn't even come in your house. They just wanted to make sure it was a real address and you were a real person 
and they gave you your certificate to be a known shipper. Um, so once, you know, ship your reptiles and all these other guys came around, that was huge for the industry because anybody could ship at that point, you know? Yeah. yeah. I think I, from talking with people, I, it seems like I was one of the last batch of people that had to send a test package to FedEx to be an approved reptile shipper. After that, yeah. I don't think anybody's ever done it after me. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, yeah. And before that, it was just selling local, you know, Hey Frankie, I got a bunch of babies, this, you want to come get them and sell them to the pet stores or wow. it wasn't, you know, you weren't worrying about market value or an animal holding its value and all that kind of stuff. And back then pet stores were the main outlet for it. So you didn't realize that maybe you're selling it to a pet store. That's then selling it to some kid that's going to take it home and beat it with a rock. You know what I mean? Like you didn't vet your customers, like, you know, caring breeders do nowadays um you know i can't i'm sure i don't have to tell you guys but i turn away a lot more people than than get an animal from me and these days most of my animals are given away actually than sold you know because i know somebody looking for a male this or a female that and if mm -hmm. i read it and i can help them out i try to do it and so most stuff these days is just given away and i breed for fun now i don't breed to try to make that next new thing you know Speaking of your female rhinos eating me out of house and home, so yeah, um, we got to get together. Yeah, I gotta do that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I gotta, I gotta run down there and get it. Yep, that or I'll run up to you. So <laughs> either one works, but yeah, yeah. I'd have to arrange a trip. Oh no, uh, a trip to Keith's. Oh damn, <laughs> damn. <laughs> well, he's just ten minutes from that park. It's no worries. <laughs> <laughs> As the crow flies, not even crow right, Rob? Yeah. Yeah, right? Hour and a half. But one, one crazy turn and you're good. Yeah. Oh yeah. gosh. At least I got out of the parking lot alive. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. It was close. It was a close call. It was, it was, it was yeah. a moment there. Yeah. God. Awesome. So <clears throat> I um you know, the one question that we ask a lot of people nowadays is, you know, what's that one piece of equipment in your in your snake room? you know, that you had, what was, what was that in those days? Like, I mean, you probably, maybe you didn't even have a snake room. Maybe it was just in your bedroom or your basement or whatever, but what was that one thing that you had to have in those days? In your it, it, believe it or not, it was that stick on heat pad, man. That was the thing that I thought I was the shit. <laughs> I thought I, dude, I thought like people didn't have a clue on how to keep stuff. <laughs> if they only knew about these stick on heat pads, like, you know, I was keeping Cayman in, in in these fifty gallon aquariums with that slate bottom, and was and was keeping the because before that I would try using fish tank heaters, right? right? But the Cayman would go up against that damn thing and wind up getting a burn on it or yeah. something else. So the invention of these stick-on heat pads, I'm telling you, was revolutionary at the time. <laughs> and, and even now, and I, I recommended Eric buy one just this week. Oh yes, my yeah. god. Yeah. I'm telling you, they do work for certain species. And and for caimans, it was ideal because it, it, it was warming the water. It wasn't a consolidated heat spot or anything like that, you know. Yeah. Um, that and and just um, being able to wire up my own light fixtures um, so that I could put uh, bulbs um, in the early days, you know, uh, a 25-watt bulb or if you had to go up to a 60-watt because it was winter time. You would just change the bulb in the uh, uh, in the cage for the animal just to heat the thing, and you'd cover the top, and there would be no ventilation, and you know you'd be 
overcooking the thing because you didn't even have a thermostat to really take a temperature reading of what was going on in there. You would take your mother's uh, turkey thing that she would jam in the turkey and try to get a reading on the inside, you know, and you'd put that in the cage and try to get a a temperature reading, you know. It it was pretty, pretty uh, barbaric in the early (laughs) days for sure. But I mean, that probably means that you have to be that much more tuned in. Well, either it's not going to go well or you have to be really attuned to the behavior that you're Exactly. And I think I think that's what maybe started helping me look at details and the smallest things and, you know, really try to zone in on what was happening and going on and why was the animal acting this way? And, ooh, the animal's acting in a positive way when I do this. So all that stuff, you know, trying to figure it out, I think, helped me become the keeper I am today for sure, you know, having just those basic things to work with in the beginning. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, when, Oh, go ahead, Owen. Uh, It wasn't me. (laughs) I was, I was going to say, you know, once it was me, I was going to say, I was always envious once I learned about people in, in areas of Texas or, or Florida that had, you know, outside greenhouses or any of this kind of stuff. And when I was growing up, my father was a plant fanatic and his thing was cactus. He was a tropical fish guy and he was a, 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 a cactus guy and he had this greenhouse. And man, I would beg him for space in that greenhouse all the time, man. I'm like, I, I, I'm going to be like these guys in Florida with this greenhouse, you know? And I did. I kept some species in there. And then when my father's health went bad and then, you know, Teresa and I wound up buying the house, the greenhouse was still there. And you know what I did to that greenhouse? I turned it into one big natural habitat. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. It was cool, man. I had a 30 by 12 foot, um, with its, you know, own heat and everything else. And I just planted stuff in the ground and I made a jungle out there and man, I was in heaven sitting out there. And then we had another kid and I had to tear it down and put an addition on the house for a bedroom. (laughs) (laughs) But it was cool while it lasted, man. I was in heaven while it lasted. (laughs) When I was uh, writing up thoughts and questions about the thing, one thing that came to me was that sort of, uh, you know, I guess it's the one takeaway that I always have, you know, learning from you and listening to you is being a better keeper will only make you a better breeder. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, for sure. To me, you know, when I, and during this whole time evolving with reptiles, I was also keeping fish and I was also keeping birds. Birds were outside, reptiles were inside. That was great. When the tropical fish thing was there, it started to get a little hairy because I didn't have, I mean, you you literally walked through my house and like you could bump into a capuchin monkey or a caiman lizard. I mean, a caiman or, you know, there was a loose um, uh, Amazon parrot flying around or whatever. Uh, and And the people, there was a lot of bird people around me. And what they always taught me was, you know an animal well when you can breed that animal, raise those babies to adulthood, and then breed those babies. So that was my goal to me because they were like, you have husbandry down for that animal and you can do that. Now, since then, I've learned that that's not necessarily true because some animals are very forgiving and you can be keeping them entirely wrong and be breeding the hell out of them. But, you know, it doesn't mean that you're really – doing the animal justice it's just that they're able to adapt to our shortcomings but 
yeah, in the beginning, for sure, I always felt that that was the goal is if you could breed that animal, then you have a good understanding of that animal, but you have a great understanding of that animal if you could raise those babies and then breed those babies. So that was always definitely a goal to make me feel that I was doing the animal justice in captivity, you know? Right. Right. And that always put up a lot of pressure on me. And I'm sure it put a lot of pressure on you guys growing up too. Like, you know, you'd be in school and I'd be thinking about all these animals I have at home that are depending on me mm-hmm. um, to take care of them. You know what I mean? And, and, you know, when you're that passionate about what you keep, that's a lot of pressure on your shoulders as a kid growing up, you know, because you're just thinking about, man, that, that boa got mouth rot or, you know, yeah. that, that other snake has this. And what did I do wrong to create that pain for that animal? And how am I going to fix it? You know, mm-hmm. I'd be thinking about that shit in school, not math. or something. <laughs> stuff. And you know what I finally shined in school? was in biology class in like sixth grade, you know, because I was the only I was the only kid that knew what a food chain was. It was probably the only time in school that I raised my hand to answer a question. It was like the the record scratch, you know, and everybody turned around. They're like, holy shit, he's answering your question. And it was about a food chain, you know, and I was like explaining how a field mouse will eat the grass and then a hawk will see the field mouse and eat the mouse. And then the droppings from the hawk will feed the insects and they will in turn take care of the grass. And I'm doing this whole thing. And everybody's looking at me and I look around and they're all like standing there with their jaws open. Like, who the hell is this guy? You know? But for me, I was in heaven, you know, in that class. And I couldn't wait to get to that class every day. That's so funny. And um, when I was in seventh grade, the the teacher had uh, all these animals in her classroom. She had like a ferret, a couple frogs. She had a snake. She had a turtle. Uh, I think she had birds, fish, you know, stuff like that. And it was like, I, I, that's all I wanted to do was go to her class, (laughs) biology class. And, you know, same thing like, oh yeah, I, 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 call on me, call on me. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And, and, and that, that's the people in the hobby that I'm drawn to, you know, like I'm looking for those other kindred souls, those other passionate people that don't mind being that weird person that has a passion for these animals, you know, and, and and that's who I'm drawn to. There's so many people on there that, you know, looking for animals for the shock value or all, but you know, you find those people that have that true passion. They're like a treasure to me, you know? Right. Yeah, for sure. Do you know how many species you've bred? Yeah. No, I've never put it, including birds, fish, (laughs) <laughs> mammals oh, oh my god no 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 it's a reptile yeah dear god yeah no i don't i never put it together a list i should sometime okay I think what do you think, think what's 20 um yeah it has to be i mean if we think sit here and think about it right short tails bloods emeralds emeralds boas boas i mean boas amazons and that's just from like i've known you san Anzinia. We're already getting like close to 10 anyway, if we just sit here and think about it from what we've known you. And then there are shit before that, like, you know, jungle carpets and all those. Matamatas. What? (laughs) Well, I I can only say I got fertile eggs. I I couldn't hatch the eggs. And since then, I've talked to people that goes through, uh, they go through a whole cycle that you have to do to the eggs in order to make them hatch. And I just tried hatching them like any other turtle egg that I've hatched in the past. Um, so I was unsuccessful hatching babies, but I did get fertile eggs from a pair of Matamatas. That's insane. Wow. That's, That's cool. insane. You know, 
and, and to, that to have certain species that again that like it, it it must be that that the we talk about how the things go into circles with with herpetoculture where you know the the animals become there's an overabundance of them and they're all over the place and they become cheap and then people stop caring about them or keeping them or breeding them and all of a sudden they become rare again and to have that circle go round and then something like a mata mata that like certain there's got to be people out there that are trying like crazy to breed matamatas and are obsessed with matamatas and try to find every matamata they can get to buy and you're like oh yeah i had them room together got eggs it's like what <laughs> like it's, it's you know what's really so cool. cool about them like this is the stuff that i love like yeah, yeah they're a really cool looking species right mm-hmm. the matamata is really cool but like i was taking literally like like a two pound trout <laughs> and putting that in front of them and they could inhale that whole two pound trout like i had such a different appreciation for those animals when i had them but did you know when they're stressed that they literally keep shedding like this slimy skin coat Ugh. when they're stressed out I and i mean that. it's like floating around in the water when they're stressed and i also found out that when you um like i use these eheim filters on the tank and if i had the spray bar underneath the water Everything was cool with these guys. But then I tried raising the spray bar up to create oxygen in the water just to keep the tank healthier. And all of a sudden, they shut down. They stopped feeding and everything else. I'm starting to think, why would that stress them out? I'm starting to think, well, the rainy season, the rivers flood in South America. And when it's flooded and those torrent waters are coming through, they probably shut down and, you know, go into survival mode so that they don't get washed away. And, you know, all these things start coming out as you're working with a species. And that's, I think, what I love more even nowadays than being successful in breeding them is just seeing these little cues in the different things that they do and why they do it. You know what I mean? But the matamatas were fascinating. But that's, that's, again, like what we talked about earlier that you can like picture that. I would have just been like, well, the turtles are broken. Like I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't sit there and be like, well, clearly in the Amazon in this time of the day, this is when the monsoon season happens and this happens. I would have just been like, well, I, I broke the turtles. Like it, and for you to sit there and go that extra step, it, it kind of points back to what you were talking about earlier, how you only really learned about a species, uh, about how to keep a species by learning about the species in the wild. So I almost feel like herpetoculture needs to kind of get back to that a little bit more because you seem to have been able to use it towards what you keep and also stuff that you haven't kept before and just kind of think about it and do what's best right. for the animal and have, and have very, a lot of very good success with those animals based off of what you learned about them and what happens in the wild with them. I mean, right. is that what you kind of think maybe a little bit with that kind of success? Uh, absolutely. I mean, look at how much we didn't read it in a book, but look at how much we're going to the Owen Pelly, Owen. Look yeah. at how much we <laughs> learned about Owen Pelly doing what we did. You know what I mean? Yeah, and right. I think if we could get our hands on them, that would help us be better keepers in that fact, without a doubt. I mean, we probably saved ourselves two, three years of husbandry mistakes just by seeing what we saw and experiencing what we experienced, you know? Um, so yeah, one of my yeah, yeah without a doubt. Um, I think it was you, me and Eric in front of the Owen Pelly at Crocosaurus Cove and the three of us. And there were like, I think some teenage girls in the room, but the three of us are just, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just screaming our heads off. It's like, no, 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 that's an arboreal <laughs> snake. And like, and we're just going nuts. 
because yeah. we're looking at it and we're like, yes, yes. Like it's just, you can learn those things by looking at it. So like having that is awesome or having that mindset, I think is very good. Um, and you know, have, have you used that for certain species that you're keeping now? Oh, absolutely. I mean, Ari's information on bull and I, um, you know, they're going to be, what, what is that? They're going to be like my nemesis probably to the day I die trying to figure out what it is um, that really is the trigger for being successful with them in captivity. Um, so, yeah, I pick Ari's brain as much as I can because he's the only person I know that's gone there as many times as he has and and sat in those things. And, and you know, if that area was a little bit better, and more Australia-like as far as um, the political climate and all, I would be, you know, going with him in a heartbeat there to try to, as many times as I could, to try to learn about them in the wild and experience what he's experienced to try to put that into what I'm seeing in captivity because they're just so unlike any other python. Mm -hmm. um, everything that I've learned about pythons just doesn't hold true to them, you know, so... You know, I'm not like I, I said a couple times, I'm not taking anything away from anybody that's been successful. But until you're doing what we said, you know, breeding them consistently, raising babies and breeding the babies, I don't think anybody really has it down yet. It's just an anomaly because there's too many success stories. And then that person's never successful again, or they have five successes like Frederick. And I'm praying I'm rooting for him hard this year to do it yeah. again, because that's going to give me so much more confidence in myself, even uh, continuing to work with them and hopefully be successful one day. But yeah, th those are the ultimate challenge animal. When I got out of blood pythons in 2013, I wanted the ultimate challenge and there was nothing in front of me better than the bull and eye python. And boy, they have proved that to be true, you know? <laughs> um, but there just seemed to be one animal that I can't seem to put together what that success is you know it's one of the species that i just i just can't get there yet and i think if i could get into their natural habitat as ari does it would be a huge leap forward for me for sure you know you're you feel that bloke, man that i will uh, i understand your apprehension just you know the hobbits here that's one thing but you're distinctive <laughs> I, I think it'll cause some attention for sure yeah, that's what Ari says. He goes, I blend. And I go, Ari, I can't blend. He goes, well, you'll be with me. And I'm like, yeah, but they'll just pull me away from you. And, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not as spry as I used to be. You know, I didn't mind getting in a bar fight in my 20s and 30s, but I'm 61 years old now. I'm not getting into any kind of physical altercations to go <laughs> see a python on a mountain, you know. <laughs> you know, when they when the fight starts, you point, they go and do it. and then There you, you go. There you go. I could probably bring a couple extra grand and actually do that, Owen. Teresa will, <laughs> Teresa will pack and hire bodyguards for you. Uh, you, you just tell her what you need, and she'll get it. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. No, I, that that would definitely be an adventure of a lifetime, too, right there. Yeah. Do you feel that like working with that species, the bull and I, that you're trying to figure out again and 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 sort of like you know. Uh, unlock the mystery of what makes them the, you know that species so distinct um from other pythons is sort of like taking you back to those early days of you know sort of not having the information and trying to figure it out without absolutely yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. Like I, I go in that room every day and every time I look at them, I'm thankful that I have them in my presence to be able to work with. And, you know, I just look at them in awe for sure. And they are the species in the collection down there that, you know, are that species for me for sure. But you guys know, I have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I think as I've gotten older and away from the competition of breeding and trying to be the guy with the next new thing and all that kind of stuff, that um, just going down there and enjoying the animals for what they are, is just amazing to me nowadays. And I, I don't know, I think a lot of keepers as they get older, if they keep the passion, like I'm amazed at some keepers that have gotten out of the hobby that were so iconic to me in the day, like Al Zulich, you know, I like, he still loves the animals. He, he spends a lot of time going around the country. I've talked to him since he's left the hobby and he goes around the country trying to find these little obscure zoos where he can see different animals. Like he's still got the passion for the animals, but he doesn't keep a snake anymore. I don't see myself ever doing that. So, you know, right now I'm just enjoying going back and enjoying them for what they are and getting out of the competition of breeding. And, right. you know, I'll pick a couple species that are in my collection to work with every year to try to get a, a clutch or a litter out of, and I'm couldn't be happier, man. I'm, I'm thrilled to death to do what I'm doing. Nice. Very cool. I have to uh, ask you about your calico berm. <laughs> that crazy yeah, looking man. thing you produced. Uh, tell yeah. us about that. So, yeah. So I, you know, berms back then it, it was, they were the ball pythons before the ball pythons were ball pythons, you know, and, and like, you know, Bob Clark was the guy back then for sure, you know, having the, you know, I'm sure whatever was caught in the wild was brought to his attention first and yeah. he got first crack at it or Tracy did. So, um, you know, really it was albinos and greens were just starting to come around and, you know, the normal berms when I produced that. And, you know, I think there was only two other animals at that time around the world that were ever produced and they were all females and nobody knew if it was genetic or anything. And Tracy right away sent me a male that she had that literally just had two black scales on it. But she thought, Hey, you know, let's give it a shot to that calico. And, um, I tried breeding it out and it, it never produced, but Tracy, I had gotten an albino from Tracy um, and when I produced that out of that albino, Tracy said that albino came from this male that had this black speck on it. So maybe it is a genetic thing. So that's why we tried bringing her back to that male, but it never did prove out to be a genetic thing. But yeah, when that was probably the first time that I did do, uh, what I condemn nowadays with a lot of massive cutting of the eggs so I could see what was oh, inside, God. you know, and, um, Tracy was like, you know, I was on the phone with her and I'm telling her that this thing's really wild. It's totally different. And she's like, get it out of the egg, get out of the egg, you know? And, and then I had to take a picture. I had to download it onto the computer and then, you know, forward it to her in about, you know, an hour and a half later when she was able to finally see what the picture was, you know, she was blown away. She couldn't believe that thing. And then that animal subsequently got onto Dr. Bechtel's cover of his book and, I made it in a, a couple other books and I'm like blown away that, you know, people are coming up to me in shows and looking at that and saying, Hey, do you mind if I put this in a book? I'm like, hell yeah, man, that's, that's cool shit. Go ahead, go for it. You know, but it was pretty cool having a snake that there was only like two other thing, other animals that looked like it in the world at the time, you know? 
Sure. So yeah, that that was it, it was weird. Um, there was a couple people that said, it, you know, Keith, you're this strange guy. Like you know, nobody hears from you or anything else. And then every couple of years, you come to the show and you just blow everybody away with something really weird. And everybody thought I had like some radon in my basement or some kind of crazy <laughs> thing that, you know, every once in a while, just something crazy would happen to me. And some really, it was just fortunate luck, you know, that these different things started popping up and breedings that I was doing. And uh, yeah, it's just real lucky back then, I guess. I don't know. So just because this isn't an audio or isn't a visual medium. Uh, yeah. I think the best way to describe it, right, is at this point we'd call it a paradox rather than a calico in terms of the right the impression that For it sure. creates. Um, and the funny thing is, right, there are now two different proven mutations where that paradox look is actually inheritable. Whereas if you go back to Eric Sandoval with the ball pythons that are albino ball pythons that are the same and all this stuff that is kind of the same experience as yours, where it's conceived of as not being genetic and then the paradox albino Kenyan sambo, right, is genetic. Right, right. The right. Uh, obviously the banana slash um oh coral I was trying to think what's the other name for that coral glow ball python, right? Has it's this uh, hypo or T positive albino looking snake with black, you know, black on it. But, but those are genetic. So it's uh yeah, it's it's very interesting that the in I don't know. To me, and maybe you can speak to this, Keith, both with uh, the short tails and all just sort of the history of herpticulture is that we had this conception of things, your animals and then the Eric Sandoval albino ball python, paradox albino ball pythons and stuff that actually wound up not being genetic. And then there are th- down the road, it's proven that they, there can be. And in the same way, there were dozens of ball pythons that weren't genetic and then it turned out oh just this little funky belly thing that actually is and it makes a white snake it's crazy right right it's right and and then i I guess to me the thing i always find so fascinating about this sort of idea is that we view knowledge through the lens that we have today generally and we apply that retroactively and say oh this guy in 1995 was lying because he said he thought it was this and it's like no, you have to take That's yourself what back yeah. to view it. How would I view it in the absence of this knowledge? We view so much stuff with hindsight as twenty twenty, and say like, oh, that, right. that wasn't a thing, and they knew it. And it's, no, it, you learn stuff, and you need to put yourself in the shoes of 20 years ago to actually make that call. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's sort of the idea of the show, right? Because I think that, that, that it's important it's it's almost impossible for young people to imagine the world without the internet or an iPhone or, you know, any of these things that today or Facebook or social media or YouTube or, you know what I mean? Like right. information is just at the, yeah. it's only going to get worse. Soon we'll, we'll, we'll understand why well, we to Rob, to Rob's point, yeah. to Rob's point. Um, so that ghost line animal that, you know, started it all. I actually was an imported wild animal from Kevin McCurley had it. And he was at this little local show in New York state. And I mean, like 10 people went to this show and he was not selling anything. And I had jungle carpet litter at the time. And I went up to his table and he had this, he was calling it a hypo uh, Borneo short tail. Well, actually Borneo blood python back then. And I said to Kevin, I said, Hey, would you trade, 
these, I don't know, five or six jungle carpets for that um, Borneo. And he's like, sure. Because he wasn't <laughs> making any sales that day or anything. And I'm sure he thought, you know, these jungles he could get some more money for than he was going to get for this ball, uh, for this uh, short tail that, you know, nobody was going to take a second look at. He was calling a hypo. And that's how I got that animal. So to Rob's point, when I was breeding that, I was breeding for different looks because I could see different looks, but there was no way to put a, a, a label on that animal except for a name. And nowadays people look back at, you know, these different names that I put on them, like the crystal glow or this or the cinnamon, but it was to describe a look that I was breeding for. And, and people get hung up on that now today. Like Matt was in his battle with this guy and trying to explain to him why I name things down. Like Rob saying, hindsight's 2020. I was right. just trying to describe that. Hey, if you want a cinnamon ghost from me, ask for a cinnamon ghost and I'll give you an animal that looks this way. If you want an animal that looks like what I'm calling a crystal glow, ask for a crystal glow and I'll give you pictures of that animal. Cause there was no other way for me to describe it, but people get hung up on that and think that animal is going to breed true and produce more and all that kind of stuff. But it was a line bred animal and you could lose that trait within one generation of breeding. If you weren't savvy to Borneos and, and how to perpetuate that look down the road. And nowadays, like I get crucified for it if it comes up. Like, why would you name that thing that when it's not a true morph and doesn't breed true? That's what they can't comprehend. It drives me crazy when I see that stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, they're talking from 20 years ago when that that was the only way I could describe that animal to another person um, that was looking for an animal that looked that way. You know, so I put these labels on these different looks. Yeah. I get a, a kind of a kick out of it now, but it does drive you crazy. <laughs> you know? I guess I just <laughs> guessed, right, that we should be a little more open-minded and like not assume ill intent on the part of everyone 25 years ago. Well, well, listen, Don Hamper, you, Rob, know Don Hamper better than anybody. And yeah. Eric, I'm sure you guys know Don Hamper. Yeah. God rest his soul, rest in peace. He was, I thought he was a great person he, and he definitely was I, I consider a mentor for me. And, you know, Don has a little bit of a sense of humor. And I can remember him going to a show and putting some kind of a label on some Sumatran short tails that he had, you know, like some crazy. And I can remember like on in these blood python groups, they were crucified. They all took pictures and couldn't wait to get in this group and crucify Don Hamper for calling it, you know, like uh uh, I forget what he called it, an ebony black blood or some kind of a crazy name on it, you know, and it was more of a joke for Don, but these blood python people were like tearing him apart. I'm like, dude, it's Don Amper. Cut him a break. He's trying to be funny at a show. You know what I mean? Right. right. Um, Open up your, uh, your Dick Ross book, you know, as we've been talking about, I'm so excited. Exactly. Open that up and it's like, oh, who is the first person, private person to breed Timor or Lesser Sundus pythons? It's pictured in the book. Oh, take a look right. at the credit and then then maybe reevaluate your situation. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and the lack of respect for the pioneers, you know, because they didn't do the research to know who these people were. That's why this show, you know, Eric, I hope you continue with and get some of these real legends in the hobby yeah. on the show. So maybe it opens people's eyes to what came before them and what got 
them to where they are today and maybe have a little respect for these people instead of, you know, trying to look for, you know, I posted a picture of two of my green Sanzinia breeding in a Sanzinia group. And right away, guys like hybrid. <laughs> like what? Yeah. Uh, and, and, Go on. It's just and and Paul, you know, and Jeff Murray, like, you know, got a good chuckle out of it, you know, and Paul kind of set the person straight, but it just seems like, you know, everybody's looking to to try to belittle somebody else to in, in, increase their status in the hobby today. It definitely drives you a little nuts, you know? Well, what, what drives me insane is that there, there are, there are people that do it to people and like, rather than realize that they don't know what they're talking about and apologizing and back up, they like double down. Like yeah. It, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. to argue with somebody like you, who's, you know, been at the forefront of a lot of different species shut up just shut the hell up like you you don't know what you're talking about yeah you know that's that's when you want to like kind of lose your cool and you know just (laughs) but i always try to take the higher road you know i mean like i have no idea tracy barker eugene Bissett, and a couple other people told me i was the first private person ever breed green sanzinia and mandarin sanzinia in captivity and, you know, and then I have this guy that I've never even heard of before, and he's tell- calling the snakes that I'm posting hybrids. It, it just <laughs> it was kind of mind blowing. It doesn't me, make know? any sense. It's and it's almost like the there's there are people who hide behind keyboards who are so adamant that what they believe is the truth, that they're going to rain on your parade. And then when they're proven wrong, they just disappear. And it's. It but they're they're sense. in the long run they're hurting themselves right. because they're they're setting a tone for themselves that nobody with experience is going to help them. Like, man, I'd rather just shut up and sit in a room and listen to everybody else talk and pick up any bits of information I can that I think will be useful to me. You know, instead of trying to act like the person that knows everything and nobody's going to talk to you in a way that you learn stuff from. You know, you learn from everybody, man. And, yeah. and that's something I can definitely appreciate because. When you were at Eric's and you were picking out your gelatins, you were like, Owen, what I like these two. What do you think? Because it's like you 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 wanted another opinion from somebody who's seen carpet python babies. Like that's it, what I'm saying. You guys yeah. like you guys like eat, drink, sleep. Like when you Rob and Eric start talking carpet pythons, I just sit there, smile and nod, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> Trying to follow along with a conversation. So when I have the uh ability to pick your brains on what things to look for for a species that you guys know far better than i do i'm going to take advantage of that you know i'm not going to tell you like sit there and pretend i know what i'm looking at when i can ask you guys that i know know what you're looking at you know but that's the thing is like and that's what you you can appreciate is because you know where your expertise are like i have if you if you ever see me with an emerald Take it from me. I don't know what I'm doing with it. Okay, like don't even just t- take it away. Um, but you also recognize where there could be other input from other people that you can appreciate. So you you request it and you seek it out. And that's what I think is definitely lacking with a lot of herpticulture is that everybody seems to be that they are the expert and they can never be. They cannot bring in new information, which is stupid. Right. So. Yeah. A lot of egos run rampant in the hobby. That's unfortunate, but I guess that's anywhere in life. Mm. Yeah. 
it's kind of an old school mentality in itself, right, Keith, to to just approach things and say, okay, every potential person that I interact with, I could possibly learn something from, right? And I'm going to give respect to people that have done it before. Inherently, I'm going to do that. And then everyone is a potential source of knowledge. And it's just a different approach. Fundamentally, it's a different approach. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So this is Dennis McNamara, and I am going to tell you how Heathman Peak influenced me over the years. So it started in the mid-90s, maybe late 90s, when I was a kid and would stand in front of his table for what felt like hours on end, gawking at his Marvel short tales and Tanzania and things. Um, I did that at multiple Orlando shows, into Mars and Baltimore, and probably into Daytona. Then that ended up going into where I can ask him questions. He was just accessible, and we would get on AOL Messenger back in the day. And those were the days before he knew how to write novels on Facebook, so he would have his wife um, type for him so we could actually do some messaging back and forth. And we'd chat all the time when I saw Python Man 1 arrive on AOL. And then just as one more thing about his, I don't know, greatness, I guess, would be the way to say it, is I bought my first pair of high-end blood pythons from him. Spent a good chunk of change on the first head albinos that I could afford. Raised them up, bred them, and then my first female, actually, my first female I ever had that went egg-bound. She laid a couple eggs and then didn't pass the rest. Um, she survived and was okay, but I called him and asked him about it. Next time I saw him, he gave me a yearling female just to make it better. He didn't have to do that, but just that's the kind of guy he is. Just a wonderful guy all around. Proud to call him a friend now. Hopefully I didn't bug him too much when I was younger, but uh, he's just a great guy, influenced me in lots of ways, and someone I definitely look up to. Yeah, I, I often, I, I enjoy a lot of times when new people will ask me questions that maybe I never thought about, you know, carpet python related, let's just say. And, you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, they, they'll ask me a question and I'll be like, huh, I, I don't I don't really know that. And like mm-hmm. next thing I know, you know, they're asking me a question, but I'm actually learning from them, you know, because right. I'm going to start asking them questions. And now, oh, I never looked at it that way before. Oh, okay. That's interesting. You know, and like, uh, what, you know, and I don't know. I, I think that, uh, yeah, you can, you can always learn. You can always learn more, except you with short tails, which (laughs) 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 what led you to want to work? I mean, to me, that's sort of like, would you say that's what you're most well-known for is short tales? That would be my guess, you know, but I I would say at a time for sure, but you know, I go on the blood Python groups now and I'll comment or something and, you know, somebody will come back with like, who the hell is this guy? Because they're breeding animals. Like, it, like, why should it be some guy who's totally in love with the animals that you, like your line you started? Well, yeah, no, I'll see somebody talking about marbles, you know, and then I'll comment on it and they'll be like, uh, okay, thanks. And I'm like, no, no, dude, I created those, you know. <laughs> I swear I know something about them, I swear. It almost um, seems like you have like this perfect setup for that because it's like you sort of like ran with this football and then it seems like you sort of passed it off to Matt 
and now Matt's sort of like running with that football. Oh yeah, Matt's taking off with it for sure. Matt Matt is going places where I only dreamed to on some of the, you know, the looks that I was going for. Matt has taken him to that level. You know, there. So the books that I got to look at, um, and you would see this short, fat python, unlike any other python. You know, that's <laughs> what made me want to have them because, you know. I love Gaboon Vipers, you know, just the style of them, how they hunt, that they're one of the few, um, we were talking about this with Scott the other day, one of the few venomous uh, snakes that actually take down larger prey. You know, everything about a Gaboon is awesome. And to me, the a blood python and a, and a short tail were that in the python um, clan, you know, so... I was always drawn to them from day one, but getting your hands on one was like insane. I can remember red wild import bloods coming in and they were like a grand a piece, you know, and um, Rob, did you know the Hudaks up in Rochester, New York? Only they started. uh, Yeah. Yeah. They started. uh, I, I don't know if they were trying to be competition to cam over there or whatever, but they were, you know, starting some stuff and I can remember getting some wild import, red bloods from them and you know when i first saw like an adult red blood python a wild red blood python and you know you're dealing with this unruly you know 25 pound animal that when it strikes at you the whole animal comes up off the ground um and it's lightning fast and there's no indication that the strike is coming and if it does connect it's like getting yeah it's like getting hit with uh you know, a bat with spikes on it, you know, cause of the impact and the force of the blow. Like I like animals with an edge. I like animals that command respect. Yeah, I like to give them that respect. I like to um, have them, you know, m- me forcing me to beat them on their terms. That's something I always had. That's why I think seeing animals in top hats or a bear riding a bicycle, it just drives me nuts because to me, that's so disrespectful to that animal and the evolution of that animal and why it became where it was and all that kind of stuff. I know I'm taking it way too seriously, but that's just me in my opinion. It just drives me nuts. But blood pythons were just built so unlike anything else. That's why I had to have them. And from day one, when I got the first little wild imports and we're growing them up, I, I just envisioned seeing that head coming out of an egg and i was like one day i will see that head coming out of an egg and it's going to be the most amazing thing and i can remember um when uh it was actually red bloods were the first of the that clan that i bred Mm -hmm. i can remember i i actually came home from work because i was sure this female was going to lay eggs and i came home from work and i called my boss and i'm like i'm staying home i think my steak's gonna lay eggs and he's like what and I'm like, I got to stay home. I swear I'll make it up on Saturday, but I'm staying home. My steak's going to lay eggs. And he just could not fathom it, you know, but he was cool and he let me stay home. And um, I just sat there for hours and hours and hours. And when I first saw that first egg coming out of that snake and I'm like, man, I did it. I got these eggs and you could see it was a good egg and everything else. And then getting that bait, I was hooked. I mean, that was it. I was like, I got to get rid of everything else and I'm just going to get like as many of these things and as many different looks that I can find. And, and this is going to be my thing. And and I just started weeding out anything else I had. And eventually that's all I was working with is, you know, I had every size here, um, multiple, 
you know, of each sex and just, you know, everywhere you looked was just nothing but blood pythons from floor to ceiling. And yeah, man, you get to know an animal really good like that, you know? I mean, ideally, you know, if, if Bull and I were $300 and all over the place, that's what I would do. They would still hold that magic to me, whether they were 300 bucks and readily available or 10 grand and you can't find them anywhere. I, I would love to be able to fill that room with Bull and I and really finally try to figure it out, you know. And I think really that's what you need um, to do to to really figure it out. But, yeah, at that time, Bloods were that for me, man. You know, they were that rare, that hard to breed. And, you know, it was that big of an accomplishment back in the day. Just getting wild imports to feed and stay alive was huge, you know. So, yeah, man, I was I was hooked from day one once once I got them. I was, that was it. I knew that was the species for me. Nice. Wow. How, how difficult was it to find and where did you find, you know, acquire new, new, new animals? It was imports. You know, imports. luckily still the craze still hadn't really gone crazy yet. So, you know, if somebody got something a little unusual and they knew that I was a blood python guy, they would mail you a picture or, you know, download it and send it to you via computer. Um, to get a picture of the blood python that they had. Um, and, you know, I, I did befriend a couple guys in Indonesia and um, they would kind of put me on a lead if something was coming into the country. And, you know, I just tried to just buy as much stuff as I could. But, you know, I found that the bigger players like Tracy and all that would drop 10 grand on an animal were getting the really cool stuff. So I started gravitating more and more to the uh, Borneos because a lot of people were more into the bloods. And I found that, you know, I could pick up just little looks on those animals and sure enough, you know, breed for that trait. Um, a lot like, you know, fish aquarium, you know, guys in the fish hobby do and, you know, breed for different traits that I really liked in them. And it was something that I was kind of good at. So, you know, you start having success with something and you start getting deeper and deeper into it. And, and, you know, I was hooked for a long time on, on that game and that mindset of just trying to get to that next level and that next animal that looked like something that nobody else had. And, you know, for quite a few years, that, that was what drove me in the hobby. And one day it just, all ended you know it was like a light switch it was really strange for me but i was like man i just i can't do this anymore mm-hmm. i think a lot of it had to do with um more and more people getting into it and the competition i've never been a real competitive guy right um you know and you know that's i was always like an athletic guy but i hated sports because the competition like i just I, I'm, I'm just not a competitive guy, you know, and when it started getting competitive and people were like, ah, I produce this and oh, I produce that. All of a sudden that, that mystique about the animal and all that kind of stuff just went away in a flash for me. And it was just like, I knew the time was right for me to get out and maybe go back. And that's when, you know, Bull and I started catching my eye a lot more. And I was like, man, if I sell all these different animals, I could put together a nice little group of Bull and I, and you know, yeah, 2013. That was it. The switch went off, and I was done with them. It, it was kind of strange when I look back at it now, but it was just like boom, one day, and that was it. Wow. At the same time, you doing that was an opportunity for a bunch of other people. I know my uh, Matt and my's buddy Chris Kopecki. I would get calls from him every week when you were getting out, saying, 
this is unreal, man. The opportunity to work with these awesome, fantastic animals, all this stuff. So the excitement that you were able to push forward, even by you taking a step back, unreal. Yeah. 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 I, I, I really didn't know that was going on. I know, you know, Mark uh, Kirkpatrick down in Florida was real happy to get some animals and Chris got some animals. And, you know, I tried to get animals in different people's hands that were really good to the animals um, at the time that I was getting out and I had befriended, you know, um, through, uh, Facebook and through, um, forums and whatnot. Um, you know, I tried to get as many of my animals into those people's hands instead of strangers that I could, whether they could afford them or not. I tried to get them in their hands, um, no matter what, just cause I wanted to see them though there, even though I was trying to generate money for the bull and I, uh, I, I wanted those animals to go and just certain people's hands, you know? Right. Right. Was, <laughs> I'm so like proud of Matt. Cause you know, I know Matt some since he was, you know, picking up his first short tails and his first bloods. And, um, you know, so I've watched him grow in the hobby and to see him, mm-hmm. like you say, pick that ball up and run with it and, you know, score more than one or two touchdowns for sure. I mean, yeah. my God, the stuff he's, he's doing with marbles, the extreme, the extreme stuff he's creating yeah. is, is like what I only envisioned in my head. And he got there, man. So I'm so proud of him. I'm glad that he's such a good friend and family to me that, you know, that it was him that was able to, to get that look to that point. You know, as much as I'm not into morphs anymore these days, I look at that stuff and I'm just like, I get a chill on my spine because I know what went into getting there, you know, and sure. he put a lot of work and a lot of talent to, to get there. So yeah, man, I still appreciate that stuff beyond belief. It's, it's just not my game anymore, but I still appreciate it. You know, I think organic what- stuff is entirely different. You know, it's kind of like, it's just not the, not replicable in the same way. And it's like, right. I'm not a morph guy either. But at the same time, you see that polygenic stuff that someone's really pushing forward. It's like, okay, I yeah. can certainly appreciate that. Everyone likes a beautiful, you know, a beautiful critter. If you can have one, that they're all awesome. But if you can have one that looks exceptionally beautiful and you're actually right. kind of making that happen, all props to you. You know, that's just yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, what were some of the projects that you were working on? Just, you know the names of them. I know we kind of, I'm glad we sort of talked about, you know, naming them and also people sort of have an understanding of that, but like, what were some of the, the, the lines that you're. Well, so, so, um, you know, the, that ghost thing unlocked so many different things for me. And, um, so I, I had the ghost, I had a crystal glow, um, leopard and I had a tiger and I had the blues. Um, I had the cinnamons, um, and they were all, except for, uh, the, the ghost and the marble, you know, those will breed true. Um, the other ones are, are line bred traits, you know, just from selective breeding to intensify certain looks. Um, and with Borneos, you know, if you have blue in the background in the bloodline, it can crop up at any, any place. You know, if you breed two blues, you have a very good chance of getting babies in that litter that are blues but you're also going to get animals that look more like you know crystal glow or whatever else so i actually destroyed the marble line in my collection because i bred it into the ghost line thinking i was going to create something totally different 
maybe more faded out with more speckling, but it actually did the opposite. And, and it created really cool patterns in the animals that carried um, the two traits, but it didn't enhance the um, marbling like what Matt was able to achieve. He kept his line in a different direction. Thank God he did, because I basically destroyed the marble line here to get to where Matt did because I bred it into the blue line and then, you know, kept accentuating trying to get that line going. Eventually, all my marbles had the blue line and the ghost line in it. So I was not able to even come close ever to achieving what Matt's achieved um, by him keeping it pure and outcrossing it to the different animals he did to, to keep expanding on that. Um, so that was kind of a a cool path that I took, but a very cool path that Matt, Matt stuck with and took it to where he did. That's right. awesome. So what was your biggest accomplishment that you had with short tails? What was the thing that stands out for you personally? I, I guess, I guess I would have to say the marble because the name is still used very prominently today. So, you know, that, I, there's animals that stick out in my head. I had one. <laughs> we were in uh, uh, Florida, and there was a ride called the Simulator, and Teresa accidentally <laughs> called it the Stimulator. And I'm like, Teresa, it's not the Stimulator. It's called the Simulator. But anyway, at that time, I had bred this really cool-looking genetic super-striped cross to a uh, marble animal that i couldn't put a name on and we nicknamed it the stimulator you know <laughs> so we were in daytona and we had it called the stimulator but that was actually probably one of my favorite borneos that i ever produced um and i think uh mark kirkpatrick wound up with that animal and then uh you know i i produced another animal that uh rob you probably remember maybe it had that um head stamp on it very like a paradox animal um, and that Borneo stands out to me as, as a very cool animal. And then there was uh, one I, I called a super ghost because it hardly had any pattern as a baby. It was almost an all-white snake, and it faded out to this silver. Those three animals for sure probably stand out to me as some of the coolest uh, Borneos that I ever produced. Awesome. That's very awesome. Cool. Were, were there any ones that you did produce that you thought were going to go like – in one direction and either made a complete left turn into a different direction or went nowhere? No, I was pretty, I was pretty fortunate. Like just being that I raised so many of those animals, like I had a pretty good handle on where mm -hmm. they were going to go and what they were going to do. And I was, had the eye for putting them together and getting to where I wanted to go. Um, I was very surprised at in Daytona, Rob, you could probably remember, um, we everybody would call them the Asian cartel. They would come in their business suits and, and a briefcase full of money, uh, cash. And they, they love the short tails boy. And when you saw them coming for your table, you know, there was going to be animals flying off of your, off of your table. And my goal, I guess always was for Daytona show to bring animals that, you know, they would like, um, so hundred yeah, percent. It's like you'd write out a receipt and be like, I don't know what this is going to do for you relative to import export paperwork. And somehow they got them, they got them out of the country though. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it. Yep. 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 Yeah. But no, I was fortunate with them. 
You know, um, I, I guess one of the biggest surprises to me, Owen, was that um, the animals that carry the genetics for Super Stripe actually um, I liked more. And I didn't realize that they would have this. If you took a, a fisherman's net and mm-hmm. draped it over a snake, that's kind of the pattern. They would have this very obscure squiggly lines all over their body. And those guys were always a surprise on what they would look like. So I always like breeding super stripes, um, not together because I was trying to create animals with that pattern. Mm-hmm. So those guys were very, um, definitely something that I didn't know what was going to come out and always very excited to see what was going to come out of the egg. Cause they had such unusual patterns. That's awesome. Very cool. What keeps you engaged today now? currently in reptiles honestly i've been able to capture that feeling again that i had when i was a kid you know like i'm in awe of all these nature shows that i'm finding on these discovery plus channels and everything and like rob hooked me up with this guy that gave me the most unbelievable bull snakes now you would think somebody that has been doing it as long as i have and has had the different species that I've had would not be blown away by a pair of bull snakes, right? But I am as blown away today at those bull snakes as I was as a kid when I did find my first black rat snake in a while. I I don't know what it is, but I've I guess as you get older, your perspective on life and everything around you, and you appreciate things so much more. It's just able me to capture that awe of reptiles that i had as a kid you know everything to me is as fascinating today as when i was 10 years old so i don't know it's just a true passion i don't think i will ever lose and um, i'm hoping that i never never lose it for sure like i say some of the people in the hobby that have faded away i just don't understand it i'm 61 now and i'm still as in awe of anything that i see reptilian as i was from the day one so I think I'm just very fortunate to still have that outlook on looking at the animals and still being in awe of them and still wanting that next thing that I haven't kept yet. You know, that was going to be my next question. Is there still something that is out there? Yeah. uh... Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I don't know. Rob might think I'm crazy, but man, I would love to have some of those Borneo earless monitors, man. Those things are so cool. I would love to have, like, you know, you guys know I'm into fish too, you know, and I got this, the one tank now and all, but there's something, you know, creating a fish tank is like, Eric, kind of what you're doing with the the monitors now or, or that um, Owen did with his rhinos. And, you know, you can create a real natural habitat for the species, you know, and I love that about the earless monitors, like, you know, they, they have them set up in these like shallow, um, you know, very rocky, naturalistic setups the way a lot of guys are keeping them. And, you know, I'm really starting to dig that again, too. Like, you know, less is more maybe and, you know, start getting these bigger, more naturalistic setups for certain species that do well in them. Some species in captivity don't actually do well that way. Like, you know, blood pythons are a perfect example. They 
don't really thrive in a, a, a setup like that, like they do in a more basic cage. But there are species that do thrive in those, and that's starting to really turn me on. So, yeah, those guys have been on my radar a little bit, and hopefully they be, become available for sure. And, you know, having Gavin for a friend, how can you not want to have <laughs> Owen Pelly Python on your radar as right. still – a possibility in my lifetime of making it to the States and, you know, hopefully um, being able to acquire some babies at some point. Um, I've never worked with what you guys are working with. I'm so jealous that you guys got the rough scale pythons. I mean, that was something I never thought in my lifetime. That was a rarest species of python at one time that you never thought. I never thought in a million years anybody would be working with those in the in the States, you know. And, you know, that's one I would definitely like to have, too, at some point. So, yeah, man, there's still a lot of species out there to go for. Very cool. Very cool. I love it, man. And without getting into the industrialization of Borneo and all those things, to, to point out how the Lanthanotis have become, why they're, you know, we're cropping up in greater numbers. It's, I know you'll remember from the 90s, they went to Cincinnati Zoo, that the the ones that were found, it was like, Oh, they found it because they were digging a latrine. You know, you're right. talking about a subterranean critter that was only discovered because of this, which speaks to maybe how they're finding them now. And as I say, it best to avoid that. But um, I think it's fantastic, man. I think you are getting into more the elaborate setups and all that stuff. And I really love what you're doing. And it's, you know, so much respect yeah. for all the things that you're doing that, that you've, the, the progression, right? The evolution of the process. And I love where you're going. I, really, I, I appreciate that, Robin. I got to tell you, man, I learned a lot by going to your, your collection and viewing how you do things. You know, there was in just that brief time when you were preparing all your animals for us to go to Australia, cause you'd be gone for a while and watching how you do things, man. I learned a lot from that. I love the way you have that cork bark in those cages and it makes so much sense the way you have it in that cage to get that animal to be able to do what it does, you know, like, you know, seeing how another keeper does stuff that's successful with those animals, man, that, that to me would be another step that I would like to take is traveling around to people I've befriended and getting to see how they do things and spending a couple hours in their collection. I mean, there's a lot of people across this country doing different things that we know well, and that, that to me is something I'm looking forward to maybe start doing once this uh, pandemic is over with and we're able to travel and, you know, see people a little bit more easily. But, man, I learned a lot at your collection, you know, in just that brief time that we were there. Well, I appreciate it. I, I mean, it's a reflection of your stuff and it's a reflection, frankly, of, you know, going back to Frank, right? And saying, OK, yeah. this is keeping yeah, yeah. snakes monitors, basically. Right. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. And applying it to a totally different species. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So, uh, Keith, are you building um, Owen Pelly Python enclosures in the hope that one day they'll be here soon? <laughs> I mean, I mean, is that what we're doing? Wishful thinking? I mean. Yeah. So it consists of a room that's about 40 feet tall. And good, there's this good. one rock outcrop that comes way out. And then a tree Excellent. about five feet away from it. Right. And, and your Teresa's bed is underneath that, right? And, and I'm just going to lay on the floor of that cage looking up all the time. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> Perfect. I, I so, approve. 
<laughs> think of that. Think of that picture that Gavin has as his his uh, you know I, what do you call that? That his thing is on Facebook of oh, him his avatar. With that, his avatar. Oh my God, that is one that hell one. of a snake, isn't it? Yes, I love it. See, when when we were seeing stuff and 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 all. Like you're like, man, there's no way these things are tackling a rock wallaby or something like that. You know what I mean? Like they're built, they're just like a, a, a Amazon Trebo on steroids. But then Gavin sends me that picture, and I'm like, oh my god, that thing could definitely handle a wallaby. You know? <laughs> yeah. No doubt. Now it makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That was the picture <laughs> Owen we saw when we were getting a picture for the croc. Remember, he had that big. You know, that big uh, picture of Gavin with the Owen Pelly and the thing when yes. you were asking us if we wanted to take our picture in the tube of death or whatever it was. Yeah. 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 The, 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 whatever you uh, call it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I forget what I said, but it was something bad. But yeah, it was the cage of death or the tube of mild disappointment. Cage of death. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. <laughs> mild disappointment. Yeah, they didn't lower us in the nesting mother's cage. They went to this fat one over here. I'm like, oh, yeah, don't want to have a real show. But <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I like to think about is stuff that maybe isn't necessarily within arm's length, but will soon get here. I mean, do you think that, like, you're just going to keep rolling with it? And if Owen Pelly's were to eventually become available, that you jump all over them? Yeah, I mean, I may be using a cane instead of a snake hook to deal with them <laughs> at that point, but, you know, I'm willing to go for it if I can, you know. Yeah. I'll give Keith it a on his rascal scooter coming to get his own belly button. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've noticed me bragging about, especially, I mean, all my grandkids, but my one grandson, Colt, he is definitely seems to be, my daughter always calls him a mini Keith, you know, he's just like kind of following in my footsteps with, nature and and his wonderment at looking at things and i mean she sent me pictures of him looking at this praying mantis and she's like oh my god is such a little you you know so i have hopes that one day when i'm old and feeble in a wheelchair colt will be carrying on the traditions and i'll be you know able to to still be in the hobby through his hands and eyes you know nice that'd be cool because, you know, Eric, you, you may be 60 one day and hiking through Australia, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I make it to 60, I will be 60 hiking through Australia. I can tell you that. Yeah. I, I, I unfortunately will be dead by a horrible crocodile accident in a couple of years. So I don't think I'm going to make it to 60. Uh, you know, so. I'm, I'm going to give we you. We do it again. Again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to give you a little tip, right? So I sort yeah. of took this from Rob. Like he, he listens to this Hiking Australia podcast, right? Right. And um, I started listening to it and I like to watch. I don't know what it is, but for me, I like to watch like people in nature. Right. Like they, they go into nature and they go there for a couple days and they live off the land and all this stuff and they fish and whatnot. But I watch it for people in North America. And I said, I wonder if they have this for people in Australia. So I looked it up. I'm telling you, man, you will see footage of Australia like you've never seen on the hiking YouTube channels, hiking Australia. Really? This guy I watched today, he's he's in this like this 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 uh this canoe and he's canoeing through this 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 park in Sydney. And man, ah, oh, 
I'm just so jealous watching it. That's my little tip for you guys. You know, you can take I'll that have to check it out. I'll have to send you some links and stuff, but like, man, it's just, uh, it's, it's no, uh, it's just, so please awful. don't retire to Australia, Eric, please. I don't know what I'll do. <laughs> <laughs> You can't leave me and go to Australia. You understand? Well, you don't. You guys to stay. You know. You guys know I scroll through TikTok looking for animal stuff because I'll send it to you guys when I find something cool. You know. And I found this one of a a guy, and he's reeling in, and all of a sudden this croc comes up that he had snagged. You know, so I'm like, oh, I got to send this to Gavin because me and Gavin both love to fish. You know. So I figured he'd be like, holy shit, you know, I said it to him. He goes, yeah, that happens all the time over here. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you just shake him off a little bit. It's no big no. deal. And meanwhile, I'm like thinking that I found something that he's going to be blown away by. You know? He's like, God, oh, that happens all the time. <laughs> you shake them off. It's a saltwater crocodile. Like, no. <laughs> this is the of the op brothers right is that keith is our connection to gen z with the tiktok and always text messages <laughs> yeah yeah well yes i don't know for i he sent it to me i don't know if he sent it to you guys or whatever but i i i don't know if you sent it me in a text message or whatever but you know that i rob you would know better than i do but you know that little um like mangrove that we went through where we walked across that metal like metal yeah. um yeah. What was that? That was like the first day we got there, I think. Yeah, that was that whole um off the Darwin yeah. City Center. Yeah. Yeah. Point Harbor yeah. and all that. So Keith sends me a video of it, but now it's filled with water and there's crocs at the end of it. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> oh, yeah, they're walking through and there's like four, bro. Don't there's worry like about a that. foot of water on the bridge yeah. that we walked I, on. I remember that part where it was all like there was it was like a gully right before we got to like the mangroves and stuff like that. That was Yeah. Awesome. We conspicuous what conspicuously went at low tide, guys. I mean, I know you think that. I mean, and I mostly do just wander into stuff accidentally, but you know, it's not, it's not entirely for nothing. Oh, does that bridge actually get submerged at high tide? Right? Yeah. Oh, I, oh, okay. Oh, yeah, I thought they were walking at rain. high tide. Yeah, that's I plan crazy. these things to keep you idiots alive. Yeah. Will you please just trust me? All right. <laughs> right. I mean, there is. A half a modicum of thought that goes into this stuff, man. <laughs> oh, there's no doubt. I know you think about that night and day, man. There's oh, absolutely. You would be lost in the house with that I, on their trips. <laughs> I do. I'm glad you do because I don't, and it really helps. So, yeah, dude, there's nothing better than sitting on a plane for 14 hours just thinking to yourself, I wonder what Rob's got planned for us. That's <laughs> 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 freaking awesome. Good stuff. Um, I don't know. I guess what we'll close out with, Keith, is your craziest, one of your craziest reptile stories. Uh, I don't know. Whatever. You pick it. You say it. (laughs) Oh, damn, dude. I have no idea. Craziest reptile story. Well, the craziest, I mean, you know, if you want to go for um, doing something stupid, I could tell you the story again about me with my big Burmese pythons when I was feeding um, rabbits that night when I was supposed to be making a water bo- uh, baby bottle for Jessica. <laughs> so, yes. So, you know, basically, you know, Jesse's a little baby. We have all these, you know, 18 foot Burmese pythons downstairs. And I had thawed out a bunch of rabbits to feed the collection. 
and it's time for Jesse's feeding at night. And while I'm making her bottle, I remembered, holy shit, I never fed off those couple of rabbits that were downstairs to those berms. So why the bottle seat? And I'll go downstairs and just, you know, throw them in the cages and, and be back up before the bottle's done. Well, I go down there and of course, you know, the water's boiling and the thing's probably melting in the pot and all. And Teresa gets up <laughs> and she's like, where the hell is he? And I'm downstairs. She comes downstairs to find me. What I had done was open the door, half asleep, thinking about the baby bottle, going to feed Jessica. And I take this rabbit and I throw it in there to the berm. But the berm sees my hand move, smells in the rabbits that were in there. And she tags my hand instead of the rabbit, of course. So she's like 18 feet and she's at about chest level for me. So my first thought is get her out of the cage and get her on the ground because she's going to wrap me up. So I get her on the ground. She does wrap me up. She wraps up my legs, my two hands, because I'm holding her head and she's got my hand in her mouth. Now I'm officially hogtied. I'm bent over. She's got my legs wrapped up, my hands wrapped up, and I'm just sitting there like, what the hell am I going to do? If I call my wife, I'm going to be in worse trouble than I am with this snake. So Teresa's pissed off because she's wondering where I am. I'm not feeding the baby. So she says he's got to be downstairs. She comes down, opens the door, and she's like, what the hell are you doing? I'm literally wrapped up by this giant, you know, Burmese python. And I'm supposed to be feeding a baby. So she's like, what do I do? And I'm like, you just grab the tail and start walking around me and unwind this thing from me. And we'll get her back in the cage. So me and her downstairs, and she didn't shut off the damn bottle that was being heated upstairs either. So, you know, she finally gets the thing off me. We wrangle her back up in the cage. I still got her head. She still got my hand. And I'm just sitting there real quietly. And finally, she starts letting go. But every time I move, she clamps back down. Well, she finally does start letting go. And I get my hand out of there and I release her. And she immediately just goes to eat the rabbit. But I'm looking at my hand that's pretty mangled now from being in this burn mouth with us trying to wrestle her back into the cage and, you know, contorting on my hand and everything else. So now it's like midnight. We're like, what are we going to do now? Because you're bleeding pretty good and you don't want to go to the hospital because they'll come take your baby away from you. You know, you crazy guy with these 18 foot snakes in your house and little baby. So we're like, yeah, we can't go to the hospital. So she goes, knocks on the neighbor's door at 12 in the morning. She's like, um, <laughs> do you mind coming over? Uh, Keith had an accident. So she has no idea what's going on, you know, so we have to tell her about the story of the snakes. She was a doctor and she, uh, she worked in a doctor's office, I should say. So she put some butterflies on me and soaked my hand and cleaned me all up and got me all back to work. But I couldn't use that hand for about a week. But moral of the story is that a baby bottle in boiling water does not last a plastic baby bottle through <laughs> wrestling an 18-foot Burmese python. It tends to melt and shrivel up on the bottom of the pot. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a good night. That was the decision that actually made us decide to get out of anything that, that was that big, you know. So that also made us downsize to something a little more manageable in the house. Gotcha. Jesse got fed around like what one o'clock in the morning, something like that. Is what yeah. we're thinking. Yeah. So you know, Jesse. Just speaking of Jesse, Jesse and Burmese pythons. You know, the calico berm or the the, the, the paradox, as Rob's saying. Um, mm. We we were going to take a photo for a magazine at my house, and a photographer's there, and he's like, "Why don't you put the kid, you know, your daughter next to you while you're holding the snake?" So Jesse comes walking over and spooks the berm, and the berm musks. 
and flicks its tail and it goes right in Jesse's mouth. Oh, oh my God. God. <laughs> so now, you know, we're trying to get this really nice serious shot for the camera that's going to be in a magazine. And I have a screaming daughter running around the house with me chasing her with the snake trying to calm her down. She never forgave that snake. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> great. I don't know. <sighs> Go ahead. No, I was just going to say those are, you know, I mean, everybody's got cr- all kinds of crazy stories, but those are the two that just jumped out of my head uh, real quick. Yeah, absolutely. I like them. Good stuff. I don't know. Anything else, gents, that you want to want to hit on? No, nah, I mean, I got nothing, but um, I mean, basically just thank you, Keith, for uh, jumping in with us. And of course, all the other stuff that you've helped us out with and even I mean, you could have easily just not given any single one of us on this line the time of day, but you totally did. And it's just been fantastic of a ride. And uh, uh, we definitely need to go back herping again, Um, whether it is in Australia or United States or Eric's backyard or um, I'll throw a rubber snake in your backyard, Keith, and then we can all <laughs> like stand around it with a beer and be like, "Look, we found it." Like, yeah, I mean, like that's fine too. It all works out. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm ready, man. I told Rob the other day. I said, "Any any trips you guys are planning, just count me in." And uh, I, you know, unless the hell or high water comes along and keeps me from going, I'm down for any kind of adventure you guys plan. Right. I, I have a. I have a fear that if this, like, if we're going to go do like a rough scale adventure and this job won't let me leave, I have a fear that is when Owen will quit his job and then run to Australia. <laughs> figure then, it out later, right? And I have, have to explain it to Melissa when I get home like, <laughs> what happened. But, like, yeah. Owen, so. you've got 15 to 16 months. <laughs> Don't do this. <laughs> Plenty of time, bro. Plenty of time. Pull right. up the time, carry over what you can. Make we're looking an animal. Got it. <laughs> right on. Yeah, Keith. Thanks for uh, you know coming on and being the uh, the first guest on this. I you know I hope I hope the hope is is that people will you know you know again appreciate um, you know things we take for granted today. Not only the equipment and the and the ability to contact people and knowledge, but just even the animals. You know, I mean just listening to you guys talk about how it was in the early days and there was no morphs and, you know, I'm kind of past that stage. I think in my reptile career, I don't know why I'm just kind of like, I'm, I don't know. I'm sort of past that game of, you know, trying to make the next thing and, you know, and, and more about, you know, depreciation for the species. And, um, I yeah. think, uh, I think that's that's kind of where I'm at. But, you know, I, when, when I hear you guys talking about that, I think that more people should, uh, you know, should, should just think about that perspective for a minute. And, you know, I don't know, that's kind of what I came up in, you know, just, wow, yeah. I can't believe I have a Walmart Python, you know, right. <laughs> exactly. like that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And what is it doing out in the wild right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, it digs. How the hell does it dig? It doesn't have hands. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yep. I don't know, but I don't know. Any closing uh, thoughts there, Rob? I don't think so, man. I think that's great. You know, as these guys have said, Keith, I really appreciate all the stuff that you've done for me personally and for the hobby generally. I think there's a ton there. And I mean, on my own, you know, on my own behalf, I really appreciate having you as a herp and travel partner. And I look forward to a ton of great adventures going forward, starting 
June. Let's go to West Texas, try that again, get some Indigo stuff, and we'll have a great time. Please, God, give me the the NT, (laughs) and then we'll go to Kimberly, and then we'll go back to FNQ. It'll so many so many plans. We just have to make it uh, wait for it to be possible, and then we'll do it. Yeah, sounds good, man. And I really appreciate all the kind words, guys. It really means a lot to me. I take all that stuff to heart. I, I don't blow it off as just a random comment. I, I really appreciate it and um, means a lot to me. I really appreciate it.